This week, Danny Miller of Ericom Software joins us to talk about browser isolation. Larry Pesci and Galen Alderson deliver a demo on a project they were working on. That's what it says. What is the demo about, Larry? Vapor Trail. <laughs> Vapor Trails. Is that like crop dusting but different? Yes. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and they give that talk at DEF CON. We're going to probably talk about Hacker Summer Camp and probably tell a lot of inside jokes and stories. Uh, so just preparing you for that. And then it says insert stories here. Oh, and then we'll talk about security news. All that and more. So stay tuned. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Brought to you by Gain Control of Cyber Risk with Tenable IO, the first vulnerability management platform built for today's elastic assets like cloud, containers, and web apps. Discover a fresh asset based approach that prioritizes vulnerabilities while seamlessly integrating into your environment. And improve ROI with the first elastic licensing approach based on assets, not IP addresses. Tenable IO delivers the data and context you need to secure your elastic attack surface. Start your free Tenable IO trial today by visiting tenable.io. The SANS Institute, the most trusted source for computer security certification training and research. Visit SANS.org to explore their full curriculum and latest training offerings. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. And welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to a man who loves... Being the unwitting participant in a smelfy, Paul Asadoria. Welcome, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. This is episode 524. I'm, of course, your host, Paul Asadorian. Excited to be here, as always, on Paul's Security Weekly, the show that started it all for us in the, the podcasting world. So, 524 episodes ago. 524 episodes. Larry Pesci is here in studio. Yes, yes Just I like am. he was on episode one and probably <laughs> Many in 85 between. or 87% <laughs> maybe of... Maybe even more. Maybe but even more episodes in between. Yep. What's going on? Same shit, different day. So, do you know what a smelfy is? Uh, I was afraid to ask and I was really hoping that wouldn't come up. <laughs> <laughs> so, in order no, to take no, a smelfy... I was really hoping we could say So, that. in order to take a smelfy, you have to fart... And then take a picture, a selfie with the person who smelled your fart <laughs> and their reaction. <laughs> Riley apparently enjoys it. <laughs> I'd like to welcome our other lovely hosts on the show. Jeff Mann is here with us. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, uh, smell these makes, makes me think of Mark for some reason. It does. <laughs> oh my God. It does. <laughs> so what's going on, Rumi? Jeff was my Rumi at, uh, yeah, for we DEF CON. roommates in Vegas. It was fun. It was awesome. Hey, what happens in Vegas stays, stays in Vegas. Stays in Vegas. That's and, right. And except it, for, and if, and if it doesn't, it can be cleared up by a very good prescription from your doctor. Except for Joey, 
props to Joey, our waiter at dinner at the top of the world in the stratosphere. Did he not stay in Vegas? I wish he would come home with us because he was so awesome. Best waiter ever. Best waiter ever. Yes. Ever. 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 Joff, you missed the, the greatest waiter ever because you didn't come with us to, to Black Hat or, or DEF CON. I apologize. I, I know. We could have so been roommates. The offer was out there and, and Jeff, he, he, he trumped you. So could have been you. Just yeah, it, I I know, and I appreciate it, and I, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed your spooning with Jeff, but uh, you know, hey, that's Daisy Vegas, and, and either way, whoever's name you screamed out the middle in, in the middle of the night, you're probably pretty close. <laughs> Jeff or Joff, same same difference. I had an announcement. Uh, I have announcements on my tele. I do have my teleprompter. <laughs> what is uh, my my brain? What is when you get back from a conference like you have brain? Scramble. Con brain. Yeah, con brain. Thank you. Uh, ITPro.tv forward slash security weekly. Use the discount code SW30. Try it free. And by it, I mean there's this exciting new thing that they're doing. Have you heard about this, Larry? Mm-hmm. So they've got this thing for, what do they call it? Uh, it's the supervisor portal. So like if you work for a business and the business buys a subscription, they still get the, the money off that we have, uh, 30% off monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. But you can go buy that. Your company can go buy that. And then give accounts to all the employees. You can track their progress. You can assign training modules mm. and kind of manage their training and learning experience. Now, what I've cautioned people about is like, don't yell at your employees for not doing training. It probably means you just haven't given them enough time. Right. But I thought that was really cool. I like the part where you can assign training modules. Like, I think this person should take this training, yeah. assign it to them, and track their progress and and work Very with cool. your employees to um, to get them trained up. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So make sure you check that out. All right. Patiently waiting, because uh, we got a late start, and I apologize. Danny Miller from Ericom Software is here with us. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. Nice being here. Yes, it's nice to have you. So you are the Director of Product Marketing, and um, you also have a bachelor's degree in behavioral science and a master's in psychology. That's awesome. I- I'm told Jeff is going to talk with you about that, about such matters. <laughs> But we're really here today to talk about um, <clears throat> isolated browsing. Uh, and so, uh, Danny, just kind of put it in perspective for our listeners. Um, what do we mean by isolated browsing and, and what's the problem we're trying to solve? Great. So when we talk about, uh, uh, we look at the enterprises and we look at what employees are trying to do and pretty much they're trying to browse the internet. So whether they do it for their leisure or whether they're doing it because they actually need to do their job, you know, going, uh, doing research, doing training, like you just mentioned, uh, they're browsing the internet. And uh, as we know, um, if you look at the current uh, attack vector uh, through which malware is uh, an exploit of penetrating the enterprise, uh, it's clearly that uh, the browser is the weakest link. So in that sense, you want to try and uh, address the, the browsing experience. On the one hand, give your employees a positive browsing experience, a native one. But on the other hand, you want to make sure you protect the organization uh, from all this uh, potential hazards. So browser isolation actually means that you're going to let your users browse but they're going to do it using a virtual browser. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, go ahead. So uh, how do we accomplish this uh, isolation in the browser? Obviously, there's operating system protections, but they don't quite, uh, they, they fall short of the mark of isolation. 
Um, so what are some of the techniques for uh, actually isolating the browser? So the way it works is that um, when you look at the current products that are doing all kinds of uh, uh, network uh, detection and prevention, they are all, whether they are signature-based or other type of solutions, they're all focusing on identifying the malware and then blocking it. When we talk about browser isolation, we actually uh, shy away from saying that uh, this kind of traffic is good and the other traffic is bad. So we're kind of going away from all this white and black li- uh, listing. And we basically say we don't know what it is. And as a result, we want to uh, enable a secure browsing. Now, the way it works is that uh, the user requests to browse. It goes through an organizational proxy. The proxy determines whether it's, again, right or wrong, whitelisted or blacklisted. But the default of the system is that it goes through secure browsing. Secure browsing meaning that we actually have a dedicated container, many containers that are available in the DMZ. So we have a pool of browsers sitting in a server in the DMZ, and they are the one doing all the heavy lifting. So as a user, you request, let's say I want to go to CNN.com for some reason, and the virtual browser inside the container is going to do the browsing for you. And the information from that virtual browser that resides, again, outside, uh, uh, away from the local area network and away from the endpoint, this virtual browser is going to do all the heavy lifting, and the information is going to be rendered back to the end users. This really means that nothing is running on the end code, no, no code, no nothing. And in the case that there is any particular malware that is trying to penetrate, it actually remains in this disposable container. Now, these containers are, again, they're temporary. So they're just executed based on a request for, for browsing. And at the end of the session, on, after a certain idle time, they just explode. So there's no remains of that uh, uh, browsing session. That means any petition malware that may have been in the, accumulated in this session is actually now discarded. So when you say it gets rendered <clears throat> back to the user, does it, mm-hmm. does it get rendered back to me as an image or static HTML, or is that like configurable? Right. So actually, it's all images. So the user is getting a visual flow of images, and uh, because we have the know-how and the expertise, the user gets a native user experience. They don't even know that uh, on the one tab they've been... Uh, uh, surfing using a regular browsing, while a, d- a different tab they've been using a virtual browser. So it really looks exactly the same, and we rendered the information on a, in a picture mode. So what happens if I need to fill out a form? That was going to be my question. <laughs> well, first of all, you have to do it very cautiously. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, everything works exactly the same uh, as for, for, any, uh, for any experience using a web browser. Uh, so we know how to, uh, in cases, let's say, let's give an example. Uh, if you want to you wanna go and use a, a certain cookie or you're going to your Google Drive or you want to try and fill up your, uh, uh, your details somewhere, as you said, filling up a form. So we have a way of uh, checking those credentials, uh, making sure the information is passing only in a, in a text mode. And uh, as a result, nothing malicious can actually go back from the virtual browser into the, uh, into the, local, uh, the local browser. 
So th- this protects against things such as cross-site scripting, correct? Yeah, but, but not just that. I mean, you can think about phishing attacks. Uh, if you're trying to do phishing uh, and uh, the phishing is done actually in the container and uh, the user is now, let's say, a drive-by, uh, drive-by download that came out as a result of uh, going into a certain site, uh, all these things are actually remain in the secure container and at the end of the session, they disappear. So there are a couple of, of uh, these types of malware that are, that are handled. So it's not going to protect against any kind of credential stealing, right? Right. So when you talk about spear phishing, mm-hmm. um, again, if the user ended up clicking, let, let's say, let's take a real life scenario. User is getting an email from someone who's so-called, you know, CEO of the company, and they click the link. Based on how the system is set up, as I said, the default of the system is if it's not blacklisted or whitelisted, then it's going to be open in Ericom Shield as a virtual browser. So if there's any malware on this website, it's going to be contained. However, if the user has been tricked to actually put in credentials, uh, I guess, unfortunately, this is where, uh, where we stop. This is where we can't really help the user. Gotcha. Gotcha. Joff, I'm sorry, Jeff, Larry, did you have a question? No, no, yeah, I was going to ask about the, the form field stuff. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so are you able to pull any of the malware off of those containers um, for analysis? Right. So, so again, the, the, as a philosophy, uh, using isolation is really the, all about saying we don't want to play the game of what's right and what's wrong because... Um, all you need to do is you need to make one mistake and then the malware can penetrate. So instead of saying this is maybe a, a good website or a web, bad a website, all we do is say we don't know. And as a result, we're just going to keep it in isolation. That, that's the concept of, uh, of secure browsing using isolation. I got you. So, yeah, so you're not detecting if it's bad or not. So you don't know if you need to preserve a container to do some kind of analysis. Exactly. Let, let's look at what's happening right now in the industry. If you're using, uh, you know, uh, an antivirus or you're using a secure web gateway or any of the other of, or even a firewall. I mean, you need to have some uh, information saying this one is a good one. This one is a bad one. You know, if an employee just been on a week vacation and you're late to install the, the, the latest updates, then you got yourself uh, a walking vulnerability. So because Right now, when you look at the defense in-depth strategy of all the organizations, they have a pile of products that are doing, each one of them is doing something. What we see browser isolation as another layer in this defense in-depth strategy. So we actually cover that aspect of, you know, the human factor of users just clicking a link. Now, uh, maybe one more thing to mention is when you go into any innocent-looking uh, website and you're just going to look at the page source, you're probably going to see hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of, uh, of code, of lines of code, some of them being malvertising, some of them being you know, JavaScript running, all kinds of other things that are happening in the background. When you actually do right-click and check the view source in an Ericom Shield website, that means the virtual browser, you're going to get very few lines, which are really the lines calling the rendering engine. So no code 
is running on the endpoint. And this is why browser isolation is so powerful. Yeah, no, I, I like that. That's good. Yep. What about for things that need to make calls out to the web, like for an API or software that needs to get software updates that has to actually parse the results coming back uh, from a particular website? Is that stuff that needs to be whitelisted? So some some of the solution, some of the um, uh, of the web pages, like you described, may need to be whitelisted initially. But uh, we have uh, a certain mechanism that help us uh, identify and and uh, transfer cookies between sites, and as a result, kind of verify that the site is uh, is safe to use. Also, uh, a lot of the websites now are using uh, HTTPS. So when using HTTPS, obviously with the built-in encryption, uh, some of these updates are actually uh, uh, quite safe. Uh, some of my other questions, you know, I have so many questions, like, how do you do that? Um, <laughs> the other one's like, how do I watch a YouTube video if it's doing uh, rendering uh, somewhere else? Okay, that's really how the magic happens, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so uh, maybe that's a good opportunity just to give a couple of uh, pointers about Ericom and who we are. Yeah, uh, the company has been, uh, you know, for about uh, been operating in more than twenty years uh, in the fields of uh, secure remote access and virtualization. Uh, as part of that process, as part of the know-how in the company, we actually developed uh, HTML five uh, client. Uh, I would say six, seven years ago, so we were uh, hmm. pretty much the first one to the market with a solid HTML5 uh, type of solution. So uh, with our uh, remote secure access solution, we have tens of thousands of devices in the field that are already using that kind of technology. Uh, coming from a virtualization background, we know a few things about how to deliver, uh, how to create you know, those virtual browsers, and how to uh, do the rendering in an efficient way. And as a result, now when you're going on Ericom Shield and you try it out and you're looking at, at the videos, it's quite amazing to see how smooth it is. You know, audio is synchronized, video looking great, also in HD. And uh, the R&D team is really working very hard in making sure that this, the, this is transparent to the user. Because at the end of the day, for this solution to work, users need to be totally unaware of what's happening in the background. Yep. And that's a challenge. Yep. Now, speaking of sort of being unaware, I know that there's those wonderful developers out there that, you know, design their sites for Internet Explorer only. And you mentioned some containerization. How do you deal with some of the containerization that requires a specific browser engine to operate? Right. Because we are using uh, HTML5, basically any uh, browser that uses HTML5 it's going to be fine. We don't really care which device or which browser you're going to use as long as it's HTML5. Uh, and we do the magic, uh, you know, in the background. So okay. we actually have uh, a specific uh, engine that we're using in the container. But from the user perspective, it doesn't matter. We, we just deliver the same experience, whether you're, you know, using your Mac now using Chrome or whether you're using your Windows laptop, you know, with uh, Internet Explorer. Okay. How, how difficult? Sense? How difficult is it to tune those containers so that they can accurately render other websites uh, on the? So, if a website requires this technology or this particular browser, like do you emulate different browsers from the container itself? Uh, no, we actually uh, we actually do the 
all the rendering in in the on the server side, right? As I said, there's a, a server running in the DMZ. Um, what we do is we have uh, actually a pool of containers. So when you think about user experience, uh, as soon as the user is trying is hitting on a URL, uh, it doesn't need to wait for a browser. There is a pool of browser waiting for the user, and all we do is just create the connection between that browsing session and the virtual browser who's doing the um, the actual browsing and the rendering. So it really doesn't matter from our perspective. So in your virtual browser, if the site's requesting Internet Explorer, do you have the, the kind of smarts in that virtual browser to emulate Internet Explorer, for example? Uh, we are using Linux as our, uh, um, you know, as our Linux containers and Linux as an operating system, uh, but we do have the tricks to make sure that it looks okay on Internet Explorer as well. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so, and I'm, I'm thinking like, like, man, this is great. And this very much sounds like an enterprise solution. How can I get this for my wife and kids at home? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, like, have you considered uh, uh potential, uh, home, home market or consumer market for something like this? Yeah, definitely. And we actually heard it from, uh, uh, for different type of, uh, different kinds of analysts and others. Uh, but I have to admit that right now our our focus is on the enterprise. We're about to launch the product in a, a matter of uh, of weeks. Um, we already have that product in place uh, as part of our first generation, which is based on a Microsoft technology. And we're kind of doing now our second generation. And as soon as we're going to get uh, comfortable in the field, with all the right uh, uh, companies buying into it, uh, then we will definitely look at the, uh, at the, at the household market because uh, it's very clear that uh, you can protect your uh, computer at home and all the different devices. And, um, you know, we can blame our kids for hitting on all the wrong links, but that's true also for adults. So, <laughs> um, you know, if, if we can just try to save the world with, uh, you know, hitting on those the wrong links... That would be great. Dan, what's the, the underlying container technology? Is it like CoreOS with, with Docker, or is it some other kind of container technology? Uh, I'd say the latter. So it's more of a, uh, using a Docker technology, and uh, on top of this, building uh, using a, a specific uh, Linux operating system that we uh, you know, trim down, mm-hmm. make sure it's a very uh, lenient and efficient um, uh, Linux with a browser, and uh, that's about it. So that's the, the secret sauce. Uh, you have, you have to remember, sauce. you have to remember that because this is an enterprise-wide solution, and because you know Monday morning nine a.m. people are probably going to be firing up five, ten, fifteen uh, different tabs, you know, on their mm-hmm. uh, um, computers. You have to be ready to scale. And that means that there's a lot of uh, dynamic, you know, the, the very dynamic system with a browser going up and down and, and people shutting down and moving up and down. So uh, you got to be very, very effective in how you manage uh, the, your pool of browsers. And we do a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, act balance, acting balances, uh, checks and balances to make sure that we always provide the best user experience that they won't be in a situation where, hey, there's not enough browser for you. Right. So I don't know what situation your end, but I have like 
probably 15 browsers tabs um, open right now on my laptop, and every tab is a virtual browser, hmm. right? Because we don't want to, we may want to make sure there's no leakage between sessions. So every tab is a virtual browser. You always have that one window that has like 25 tabs open and like you forget that window's there and you just create like two new windows with all the tabs open and you're like, why is my browser running so slow? And where did oh, those I, other tabs go? Yeah. Where did those other tabs <laughs> yeah, open go? Where's that website I was on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's very much the, uh, sh- the Shmukon ticket sales problem. It's yes. like, you know, the, the, the Shmukon website runs great all year long until they go to do ticket sales and they have a half a million people trying to hit their website all within this three minute period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have a couple of questions real quick. Um, yeah, so one, uh, one is uh, how do you deal with the situation when the uh, browser user wants to download some sort of content like a PDF or, or uh, um, some sort of zip file or something like that? And the second question is um, have you done uh, any uh, studies over the long term as to the impact on the client side? Uh, is your technology actually lighter weight in terms of resource utilization and overall uh, efficiency on the client side? Okay, great questions. Thanks for that. So first of all, uh, as you clearly stated, part of the user experience is the ability to download files, and we know that. Uh, That means that as part of the process, if let's say you're browsing now on a certain website and you want to download a file, the file is going to be downloaded into this container. We are actually, uh, we can connect to any sanitization um, uh, solution that the organization has and you know with, with all the organization that we speak in on the financial and banking and and health they, they most of them have something in place but our solution also come built in with a third party um, uh, sanitization solution and when I mean what I mean by sanitization it has actually two angles one is a multi-scanning engine that checks the file. The other one, which is more sophisticated, is what's called content disarm and reconstruction. Actually taking the file down, breaking it into pieces, eliminating any potential uh, code or malware that may reside within, and recreate the file according to, let's say if it's Adobe, according to PDF standards. Only when this, this process is complete, only then the user can actually download the file to the endpoint. Until then, all this process is happening in the virtual, uh, in the virtual browser, in the remote container. And again, it's in the DMZ, so nothing is penetrating the organization until it's get the, the okay that yes, this file is safe to use. Um, so, so uh, I know that right now, when you speak to users. They are okay with waiting, you know, sometimes a couple of minutes even for a file to be cleaned out saying, you know, Big Brother is making sure that the, your file is, is going to be safe. So people are, uh, it's okay for them to expect it. It's not okay to expect when you browse the internet and say, eh, well, we're not sure if this uh, site is uh, blacklisted or whitelisted. Give us a minute to check it. That's not acceptable. But downloading a file, that's okay to wait. So that's in terms of the the file sanitization. And uh, again, one of the advantages of our solution is uh, we know that uh, there are uh, small and medium-sized organizations who do not have that kind of a solution in place. And that's why we embed it as part of our solution. So they get 
not only the secure isolated browsing, but also the download of the file. As for your second question uh, regarding uh, the number of uh, uh, browsers and, the, and uh, how they clog the system or they don't, it really is all about managing the resources and making sure that after a certain uh, period of time, uh, browser are being uh, uh, or containers are being exploded and recreated from uh, again. And um, it's very important also to understand that, uh, as I said, the system is very dynamic. So if you have, for example, as I said, this example of Monday morning, 9 a.m., uh, there might be a chance that the, set, the, the, the idle time is going to be a little bit shorter, right? Because we know that uh, uh, there's a lot of traffic, but uh, say around lunchtime, it's less of an issue because the resources are available. At the end of the day, it's a lot of the decision at the uh, enterprise level. They need to decide uh, how much resources they're willing to give the, uh, you know, the, the, the remote browsing to make sure that users can really uh, browse freely, or they're going to say, hey, uh, we'd like to limit this. So we have all those uh, uh, business logic embedded in the, in the product, and uh, comes a certain threshold, we know how to manage the ups and downs. Danny, how do you, how do you handle SSL? Is it similar to the way proxy servers, would I believe the way they handle it today? In other words, I get a trusted certificate from the proxy server, and then the proxy server does the validation of all the sites I go to? Exactly. So, the, But what we do is we actually using ICAP, which is a protocol uh, very common in the industry, and we actually place our ICAP right after the proxy. So we use the ICAP to really execute the organizational uh, proxy policy. And uh, based on the decision, I mean, you might actually even have a firewall before the proxy and then the proxy and, and maybe even a proxy afterwards. So we'd like to be the last point before you go into uh, the outside world. And uh, after all the policies have been executed, this is where we're going to decide whether you go directly to the Internet, whether you've been blocked or whether you're going to be getting an Ericom Shield virtual browser. Do you, do you uh, uh, act as your own proxy, or are you mostly in the business of partnering using ICAP with, with other proxy solutions? So we've been talking to uh, many customers and prospects. Most of the organizations that we speak to already have a proxy in place. And... In such cases, we just, you know, come with our ICAP solution and handle this. Some organizations that do not have proxy, we provide the proxy as well. So our solution have a proxy embedded, uh, you know, standard proxy, uh, and uh, we can just disable it in those cases where uh, the organization already have a proxy built in, which, which is most of the cases. Oh, so both. That's great. That's good to hear. Well, you, you you gotta be you gotta be um, you know flexible. You don't want to tell the customer, "Hey, you haven't been using a proxy, so we can't really help you." Uh, you gotta find a way to really hook up to what the industry is looking for. And and ICAP right now is, is probably the most common protocol to connect between the you know those pieces. Right. Right. How does the product uh, provide, or in any isolated browsing situation, like how do I get feedback as to how I'm doing? In other words, like how do I measure success and know that it's successfully protected, you know, some of my users? 
Okay. Uh, at the end of the day, as I said, we are not checking whether uh, you've been uh, you've uh, just been hit by a malware or not. We're just making sure that the session is always away from you. Uh, now, th that's again, this is probably something, some sort of a measure that we need to uh, put in the system to make make sure that if a malware did try to penetrate. We can just kind of a collect and say, "Hey, one malware down in this uh, this in this container." Uh, but right now, we don't do it. We just uh, look at it as a as a black box and saying, "If if something wrong is here, if something is wrong here, we don't know, but we don't care." That's pretty much the uh, the philosophy. Um, we do have a log, a very extensive log system that uh, tracks everything, you know, from all the connections and the number of browsers and idle time and and how many times you were browsing and where. Um, but specifically, identifying a malware, this is exactly what we're trying not to do because, as we see in the industry, this is where um, most companies at some point in time fail to say, hey, I missed that specific malware, and as a result, you know, I've been hit by a WannaCry or, or any, anything else. I got you. So... This would ride on top of any kind of browser protections that I've put in place. Like, what if I run some kind of ad blocker or something in my browser? Does that just kind of work uh, before it goes up to your system? Exactly. Exactly. And, and again, I can't really say that, you know, everything that you have right now, you need to ditch and just use, the, and just use the secure browsing and browser isolation, and you're good to go. Uh, we know that you need to have different types of product that address uh, the, the hazards in, uh, you know, of, of uh, browser-borne threats, uh, different ways. So definitely you want to have whatever you're, you're currently using. This would be an additional layer that's going to do the trick. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting we're going to talk about it in our stories tonight about some of the history behind uh, advertising on websites and Google's attempts to put in um, advertising blocks inside, natively inside the browser. Uh, and there were some interesting things in there about sites like Forbes and, and Wired. I think, it was, I think it was Forbes that said, well, if you've got uh, an adware blocker on your browser, then you have to you know, register and, and pay us or register and not pay us, something like that, to have an ad-free experience. And as soon as they, like right after they did that, they had some kind of malvertising campaign hit their system. <laughs> so if you had disabled your ad blocker, you actually got owned going to the site, unless you had a secure browsing solution, which prevent that kind of behavior. So I, I think it's highly effective at stopping those kind of attacks, which are hard to, to trace down, uh, certainly. Yeah, it's, it's hard to put your thumb on, you know, Hera, I'm being attacked right now, uh, simply because uh, really, I mean, people just browse and browse in the, uh, you know, the number of, of open sessions that are happening you know, in a company at any given moment are just impossible to, to trace. So uh, you just want to make sure that you're taking uh, an approach which is a little bit more unique, which is uh, really looking at more holistically at, I just don't want to deal with it. Let's, let's put it aside and, and let, it, uh, let it play uh, in, a, in a safe manner. So that's really how we... We look at secure browsing. Danny, where do the where do the, the cookies reside? Are you handling the cookies on your 
container and just passing back the result? Like, are you building those cookies and maintaining them for the user or are some cookies passed back to the user's browser? So we are maintaining the cookies on the end user browser. However, the first time when you are going into a new site, we do uh, bring back a cookie, but we remember them. So that, that's, for example, the reason why if you open a tab on Google Doc and another one on Gmail, uh, from, a, from a user side, it's going to be totally transparent. They're not going to do any login or anything like it. Right. Uh, but yeah, we, we have to pass cookies. But by the way, we have a, a kind of straightforward management, uh, webs- management uh, web admin that uh, you can take some decisions. And the decision is based on, you know what? I don't want to enable cookies from this particular site. So, and that's also a possibility. I got gotcha. you. Uh, so um, we, we do enable this granularity, uh, but but most most option we know that uh, cookies are really really required because if you want to maintain the user experience, the native user experience, yeah. you kind of have to have those cookies. In fact, so now um, are is each individual connection to a site does that get its own container or does my browser get its own container? No, every tab, every URL that you're going to click is going to be firing up a dedicated container and inside a virtual browser. So in that respect, uh, cross-site request forgery attacks don't exist on your platform provided the containers can't talk to each other, correct? Exactly. The containers are totally separate. That's exactly why the reason, because as you can imagine, as the R&D team were we're uh, putting together the, the thoughts around, the, okay, how, how should it work? Uh, there were some thoughts of saying, okay, one user is browsing, it's one container. And then we realized that this leakage is, mm-hmm. is something too dangerous, and we need to separate and isolate each one of the sessions because you can never know where the malware uh, resides. So to a certain extent, cross-site scripting attacks can get at whatever's inside that container potentially correct yeah they're gonna be hitting the container and uh and that's about it and then the container is just gonna go away and uh with it the attack so it's somewhat limiting i don't know joff or larry or jeff correct me wrong somewhat limiting to to cross-site scripting attacks because you can't get at the you you can't execute code in the user's browser your your microphone's up by your head sorry you can't execute code in the user's browser i had to cough so i put that up there it's in Uh, the container you're right but it's in the container and it's only got access to what the container has access which is just that one website. which is that one website so that's pretty damn cool it is that is pretty cool it is pretty cool and and i think it's also it's elegant it's really keeping the users uh unaware of the fact that they are now not jeopardizing the organization, but by going to all kind of uh, uh, funny websites. Funny. I like the way you put that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Any more questions for Danny? I have none. Sweet. Danny, thank you so much for appearing on Security Weekly uh, and sharing with us knowledge about uh, isolated browsing. Uh, I was always kind of curious how it worked without installing a client on on the user's workstation. So now we have the answer. And now we have a very elegant Yes. Answer. Containers for the win. Thank you so much, Danny, for appearing on Paul's Thank Security you very Weekly. much for having me. Have a great evening, and uh, speak to you again soon. Thank you. Uh, you will. Um, and with that, we're going to take a short break, come back, and Larry 
and intern Galen are going to do a technical segment. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next-generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Onapsis is the leading provider of solutions to protect ERP systems from cyber attacks. Customers can secure their SAP and Oracle business-critical platforms from espionage, sabotage, and financial fraud risks. Visit them on the web at onapsis.com. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. Welcome back to Paul's Security Weekly. Whether you're phishing or hacking or spying, whether they're phishing, hacking, or spying, threat actors use domains and IP addresses to launch their attacks. The experts in this arena are domain tools. That's right. They've got an awesome Whois database uh, that they've called that they do. and mined and managed over time. And uh, some really smart people, Kyle Wilhoy and Tim Helming, are giving a webcast. You can go to domaintools.com forward slash security weekly and learn more. And you should because they're awesome. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. So my question, and Galen uh, is here with us. Intern yes. Galen. Hello. Galen Alderson. Galen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. You are Larry's intern, and I am sorry for that. <laughs> he, he's effectively the Ian Guardian's intern. Uh, but, but they uh, assigned him to you. But he, I'm his boss. In as much as that works, right? I mean... And yet he's looking over your shoulder. I know. I know. It's creepy. <laughs> but if you look very carefully, if you look very carefully at Galen's screen, you can see that there's the prime opportunity for Ceiling Cat to be watching him. Yes, there is. <laughs> so... Larry and Galen, um, you did a presentation at excuse me on uh, at DefCon. Yes, uh, on something called Vapor Trail. Yep. Back up. Like, what problem were you trying to solve, and right. like, why should we care? Great. Before you get started. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and that's definitely part of some of the the, the slides that we have put together um, as part of that, because it wasn't so much that it was a presentation at DefCon; it was a presentation at the DefCon Demo Labs, okay. which is very similar to the Black Hat Arsenal stuff. Yep. Where you get two hours <clears throat> and a booth and a yep. screen, and you effectively give your elevator pitch. Every 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah, say. yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it was nice. It was one of the first times I think they've done something like this. Mm-hmm. So it was a much smaller audience. So we got to interact much better with yeah. the audience and yeah. answer a lot more technical in-depth questions when they when they came up. Uh, nice. So that would that was it. Um, and, and definitely as part of that, uh, we put together a little, the 15, the five-minute presentation so then Galen could do a demo of the actual tool. Uh, and that was one of the first things that we put on the slides was... What was the problem, and why did we create Vapor Trail to correct this problem? Uh, the The problem we have is is that as doing penetration testing and red teaming and all of this type of stuff, um, one of the big things that we find is that we often need to interact with um, a uh, a beacon, or we need to exfiltrate data in some way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. and. 
without getting caught without getting caught and defenders are getting better and better and better and better at this mm-hmm. and we looked at all the ways in which we were doing that exfiltration and found that every one of them had the ability for us to get caught especially over uh, wired networks out to the internet we're making connections from a machine out to another machine if given enough statistics and background, yeah, well, you can detect right. that. Like offensive countermeasures. Exactly. Yeah, like if it's on the network, the network doesn't lie. Like there are yeah. packets. Correct. Great. Right. So great. Let's let's get a little bit closer in proximity to on something like a red team when we're going to be in, in physical proximity. And let's go deploy an access point in their mm-hmm. environment. Well, they have rogue access points detection stuff now. And they can tell that there's a new access point that just showed up. And mm-hmm. they can tell it's connected to their network. All right, well, let's make a new wireless client. Let's turn on a wireless adapter in one of their mm-hmm. machines that wasn't and make it connect to one of our access points. They can tell our access point was connected, is there, not connected to their network, but now one of their assets is connected to another network. And they can tell that. They can tell that. So what's next? Well, you go and put your Dropbox in or something of the like uh, to, to interact with and do data exfiltration with cellular CDMA or 2G mm-hmm. or 3G, LTE, you name it. And that one is hard to detect. <clears throat> but it is becoming, right. you know, based on some of the things that we start seeing about some of those types of in, environment, um, that become is, is likely going to become easier to detect over time. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there's going to be a lot. I, I think that there's going to be a lot more technology for us to interact with cellular technologies. I mean, we mm-hmm. can already start to see. Um, you know, uh, right, the day before DefCon, there was a Python script release that was effectively an MC catcher with an RTLSDR. Mm-hmm. You know, if your business is relatively static, like your employee, same employees come in day in and day out, you can observe their MCs. Mm-hmm. And if a new MC shows up, I gotcha. Which would be a new, unique device, then that. May be interesting. That may be diff- that something you could detect. Excuse uh, me. Yes, sir. Your MC is showing. Yes, mm. yes, it is. As a matter of fact, it is. So we were thinking, and we were Galen and I were working on some other projects, and I sent him off on the tasks. You know, I've talked about him being really smart and you know coding in like three different languages in one day, and one of them he doesn't know very well. And we were talking about some stuff, and I said it would really be awesome <clears throat> if we could take files out of a directory and send them in the air over something that there is no current detection methodology for and that most people are not observing and that would potentially be very difficult to detect mm-hmm. because there's literally nothing in the environment, no corporate, no consumer offering, you name it, that could actually listen into these bands. And I thought about FM radio. Standard FM, terrestrial broadcast FM radio. What happens if we can take data and send it outbound from the organization over FM radio? So that's what we... We did. That's what Vapor Trail is. It's the oh, ability for us you to... You were playing around with that stuff a couple of years yeah. ago. So Galen actually managed to bring it to fruition. <laughs> he's, he's the brains behind the whole operation. I'm the mm-hmm. idea guy. Mm. Um, and he's way smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> we're just smart in different ways. That's right. You, you know that this is somewhere along the, the path of reinventing the wheel, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Pro- proceed. Yeah. And, Wait, and, what, what was the first wheel that did ex- exfiltration over FM radio? I can't tell you. I'd have to kill you. No. <laughs> <laughs> so th- that said, there has been, been a lot of traditional methods for doing data transfers over radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and specifically drawing on some of my uh, experience with the ham radio stuff, there's lots of what they call digital modes, the ability to take data uh, and transfer it over the air 
and do some reliable transmissions for some of that. Well, type isn't of it stuff. the theory that that was some of the uh, the stations that broadcast the, the number the number stations? Thank number you. Station. Yeah. yeah. So number stations were were sure, but they sent numbers and we didn't know what they meant. Um, and they were very much audio. Mm-hmm. So someone reading numbers with the right. digital modes, it's effectively yes, it's effectively <laughs> music music tones uh encoding data ones and zeros as to where it uh the, the waveform traverses right yeah and, and so forth um so not what you did yes yeah that exactly. is what you did okay we didn't have it read numbers but we had it do waveforms to encode uh data, data into uh digital data into an analog form and then back into Digital data, right? Gotcha. So effectively, what we discussed through going all of the through all of this was, uh, Galen effectively developed uh, a custom uh, digital mode to deal with uh, the the hardware that we wanted to use uh, to be able to transfer data over FM radio, uh, frequency modulated uh, radio. Um, there's tons of stuff on the ham radio side for doing this, but they're all well known. They're well documented. They're free, mm-hmm. but it requires very expensive hardware to implement. Like the cheapest I can think of is picking up a used ham radio for three or four hundred dollars off of eBay, and this is a big ass radio. Mm-hmm. Then you need to find a way to connect a computer to this radio to get data to that. So then you're talking some other computer de- device. Digital into a digital to analog conversion. <laughs> exactly. And then convert exactly. analog back into digital. Exactly. So yeah. we were thinking about this and talking about how can we do this cheap. Well, we talked about. In the past, using a Raspberry Pi to be an FM transmitter, you had something like that yeah. a while back. What was it doing? It was it was doing music over uh, or with a Raspberry Pi by toggling one of the GPIO pins mm-hmm. on and off to effectively create a square radio wave, right? With a piece of wi- random yeah. wire for an antenna. Well, if it could play audio, there's no reason it couldn't play custom audio to create a specific waveform that's actually ones and zeros. So that's where, where Galen was able to... We effectively used the uh, Raspberry Pi TX program, not something that we developed. Mm-hmm. Some folks had figured out that the toggling the GPIO was really great uh, and accepts so it, raw input. But toggling the GPIO pins creates yep. an FM transmission? Correct. Okay. Yeah. I got you. That's cool. Now that said, well, it's a... It, go ahead. Why FM? Uh, that was the uh, the product that was re- readily available, and uh, you could potentially tune into it with something very inexpensive. Uh, you could actually use your car radio in your car to potentially grab the data and, and find some way to record it, mm-hmm. and, and have a receiver with just about anything. And and what I mean is, there's a there's a, a spectrum much wider that you could be doing this on. Absolutely. So the other reason why we picked FM radio, and specifically in the FM radio broadcast band, is that here in the U.S. and many other countries, a consumer is allowed to operate a low-power FM radio station. So think about when you're sitting in your older car that doesn't have the aux in on mm-hmm. the stereo. You can get audio to your stereo from your discman. Mm-hmm. Right, dating myself, right? To your that what? stereo, yeah, your Discman, your your Sony Discman or your Sony Walkman, you can get that to your radio in one of two ways. You take that little tape deck thing and you plug it in your tape deck. Wow, this or is throwback Thursday, or <laughs> you plug it into this other little device that goes into your cigarette lighter, and that is effectively a small FM transmitter. 
Right. It's in the FM broadcast band. And you do not need a license to broadcast um, uh, low power. Up FM to a radio. certain power. Up to a certain power output. What that any, power any output channel, is, I any, any channel? Mm-hmm. Anywhere yeah, in any the channel. FM spectrum. Yep. Yeah. Any, yep. any channel in the FM spectrum. And the, frequ- and the, the terrestrial broadcast spectrum. Gotcha. That's effectively what the RPI TX project did on the Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Galen also tuned it so that it's well within the bandwidth reception capabilities of the RTL-SDR. So mm-hmm. the, the very inexpensive software-defined radio are receive only, which isn't super capable, but it's capable enough. To receive an FM transmission signal yes. on the RTSDLR. Yep. Which has the take the analog radio waves and yep. transmit that into digital. Yes. Oh, that's really cool. Yes. All right. So, guys, <laughs> if you don't mind uh, showing my screen just for a moment here, we'll just you know, recap some of this stuff because a few other things that I want to put up there. This is really cool, but it's just making me laugh because this is stuff I worked with 30 years ago. Yeah, it's mm. it's it's scary, and it wasn't it? new then, <laughs> right? Well, uh, we've taken a little bit different approach in that it's it's inexpensive, it's accessible to anyone, um, and we've done some custom things that have some some interesting reliability to it. So obviously, we need to have physical access to plug in a box to get stuff. Um, we didn't base it on any specific network based attack, uh, but when we thought about the uh, the initial Initial attack. It was, hey, if we're going to break into an organization, we're going to put a Dropbox. What do we want to get out? Right. And our first choice was uh, hashes from Responder. Yeah. <clears throat> so run, like run Responder on a Pi, Perfect. and then send those hashes out so we can get those hashes, crack them, and then use them like on the VPN. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Tur- turn it internal. I like your, external. Yeah, no, yeah. I, yeah, I like your attack yeah. methodology. Tremendously. Hey, Larry, does part of your demo in- include an audio file so we can hear it? Absolutely. I don't know if you'll awesome. be able to hear it from from Galen, but he should be. We should be able to make something work. Because I was thinking, you know, steganography. You should be like, you know, feeding it into like some sort of elevator music. So if somebody did monitor, <laughs> that would be just, awesome. You, you know, you got to think application. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So we our, our solution was using cheap stuff, hide in plain sight with something that's all, all all around that people listen to that they don't necessarily think too much about. We actually considered using uh, RDS. Uh, for doing the transmission. RDS is the ability to do data in uh, standard terrestrial FM broadcast as a mm-hmm. subcarrier. And that's how they get on some of the newer automobiles and such. Oh, yeah. They, we get the track information. Yeah. That's how they do that. Uh, but the data rate was incredibly slow for that. Ah. <clears throat> it was under 150 baud. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly slow. Uh, so cheap, uh, inexpensive stuff. You need to provide your own tool to gather info, write it to disk, and then we can use uh, VaporTrail to encode that data and send it across the airwaves to be to be received. Um, it's doing direct interaction with uh, RPI-TX, and if it's not necessarily... Galen, is this working yet, or is it uh, one of those things that you were working on today, the direct What's encoding? That? Or which part? Rather? The, the direct encoding? Um, right, that's not working just yet, so it's kind of still a two-step process. Yeah, but uh, he, he, you know what the problem is, and you know how to fix it. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Uh, so one of the other things that we have is, because it's a transmit and pray type of medium, mm-hmm. it's transmit only and receive only on the recipient end. We have no ability to provide acknowledgement that we've received a packet or any of that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things is to make sure that there's some reliability is that we're going to be having the ability to replay the 
session over and over again. So if you have some data, send that data, and replay that data again. And on the recipient side, we're going to be building the ability to, um, if you miss a portion of that data, it can reassemble it from the multiple transmissions. And the, because we can't request it. So we're just going to we're going to we're send it a, a certain period of time. You keep receiving until your checksum checks out. Exactly. And then whether you missed a piece of data or a piece of your checksum, your checksum's not going to check out. So you just keep receiving it until right, it, until all, it works. Yeah, until the checksum yep. works. Yeah. So then that becomes uh, a little bit more complex. And, and Galen, I'm going to let you talk about specifically the digital mode um, and some of the ways in which we've uh, done the the ability to have some reliability. All right. So yeah, so the digital mode um, it uses a um, method which is similar to FSK, which is um, frequency shift keying. Right, frequency shift keying, which encodes a signal using um, it uses a very specific frequency that kind of the, the transmitter and the receiver both know. So tr- data is being transmitted at a certain rate. Um, the Raspberry Pi can't transmit data at any reliable rate, so. I have to use something which is based on actually the signal crossing the center frequency. Whenever it you know goes from positive to negative or back, that's a new bit. And so on top, that's the low-level kind of transmission um, type. And then on top of that, we've built a or I've built a way to kind of split up data into small bi- small blocks, um, and then those blocks form a larger super block. And everything within that super block gets uh, um, a error correction recovery blocks generated from it. Now, from those error recovery blocks, as long as you have 16 blocks from that super block, you can recover the entire um, original data. But if more than 16 are corrupted, then you can't get anything out. But that doesn't help you recover in between blocks, super blocks, which is where retransmission comes into play. Right. So effectively, uh, we're using uh, ZFAC for forward error correction. Mm-hmm. Which so it's kind of like error correction in, in hard drives. Which is very similar yeah. to those of you who have ever downloaded something from a binary news group. And no, and, we would never do and, such a and, thing. And, and, and leveraged PAR2. Yes. So, like, let's say uh, one of the messages is missing, mm-hmm. but you have all of the recovery blocks. You can use the recovery blocks to regenerate that missing block. Gotcha. So there's a bunch of that. And uh, that's pretty cool. Galen, do you know how many uh, blocks you can miss without uh, and be able to regenerate with all of the recovery blocks? Yeah, you can miss half of them, and then you'll be able to regenerate from there. Right. But that's kind of adjustable just by changing a little constant in the code for um, if you have a less reliable data channel. Gotcha. Now, so uh, what's your effective data rate transfer which is kind of interesting because you're retransmitting, so you really don't. Right. You know what your your theoretical the, data transmission right. rate is, but you may need to retransmit data right. multiple times, which effectively makes it the retrieval of the data slower, but your right. data rate is still the same. same. Right. Yeah. So, so the Galen, you said the the current effective data rate is uh, you're, we were running at the demos for t- at two thousand baud. Right. It is possible to go faster, uh, but we start to it starts to be less reliable. Yep. Now that said, that's not you can't just take the size of your um, input file, divide by that um, yeah, yeah. data rate, and get the time because of all the overhead involved. Right. Which but, is, right. Those. So the way Galen. But has like, so how long does it take to transmit a few hashes? That's not a lot of data. Exactly. And and Galen's going to demonstrate. 
And you so what, what is that, like a, a, a minute or so? Less. Or less than a minute. Less. So less than a minute. Shut you up can... and let Galen do his thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other one that is very helpful, too, is that on the receiving side, uh, it's got some ability to do uh, some automatic signal detection because the Pi can drift mm-hmm. based on temperature and so can the software to find radio based on temperature. So it bi- has the ability to sort of detect that center frequency should there be any, any movement hmm. when, when things are happening. That's awesome. And uh, so, Galen, what did you write it in? Uh, Haskell. What the? F- <laughs> <laughs> right. Wasn't that an '80s brother band? No, that was Hanson. That was Hanson. Hanson. Oh. Which, if you look really quickly, Galen 90s. could probably be a member of. Is that like some kind of? Is that like a strain of bacteria? Like I, I got a little Haskell on me. I had to get yeah, exactly some yes. antibiotics. Yes. Not you yeah, you picked that up in Vegas, no doubt. Probably. Yeah. Now the problem that uh, Galen ran into in in uh, doing some testing for all of that is that uh, uh, Haskell only supports ARM seven. So only on the Raspberry Pi 2 and 3 currently, and mm-hmm. the Pi 0, correct? No, because the Pi 0 uses the old ARM v6 chip. Okay, so, like, yeah. so oh, no, okay. no Haskell on ARM 6. So what is Haskell? It's a programming language. Is that like Pascal, but no. with an H instead of a P? Uh, it's <laughs> kind of completely unrelated. It's more of a weird, like, start in academia and then migrated into industry over time. But I find that it's my favorite for writing stuff because I can get stuff done fast. Is it uh, is it object oriented or? It's functional programming, so it's function oriented. <laughs> Conceptually, <laughs> everything is a function. Realistically, that's, that's, that's not how it actually works on the shouldn't, hardware. Shouldn't, shouldn't everything be a function anyway? Is it? I'm sure you <laughs> no, function. see, you don't have variables; you have functions. What? You have to take the arguments. Wait, so where, how do you store data if you don't have variables? I mean, you do. It's just that you create functions that return data when given no arguments. And then the language, you know, makes it look Good like Lord. a variable to you. So. <laughs> Good Lord. But, so because oh, of That's the, like oh, having if statements and not being able to do a, a conditional not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, so Galen, you found this problem with v 6 and v 7 So you're going to eventually port it to what? Either C or Rust, depending on how masochistic I'm feeling at the time. C or what? Rust. Rust. I've heard of Rust, I think. It's a thing you get on your bumper. No, it's not a thing. No, it's a a programming language of some kind. It's like C, except it's supposed to stop segvaults, and it's pretty good at that. Interesting. Segvaults are so much fun. Okay, go ahead. Go continue, please, (laughs) in the interest of time. Yeah, so that's a a lot on the the digital mode. There was a lot of thought behind, hey, this is only a one-way transmission, so we need to make this reliable uh, with some error correction and so forth. that's awesome. (laughs) Yep. I like it. So we've thought about some things for the future, you know, implementation in Rust and C, um, the possibility to add encryption into the process. Now FCC says you can't encrypt the data transmission, but there's no reason you can't transmit data that's already been encrypted. I'm sorry. I'm still just trying to get over how you code in a language that doesn't have variables. <laughs> move on. <laughs> move on. I can't move on from that. Yep. There are no variables, Paul. Everything <laughs> is a constant. There are no variables. These are not the variables you're looking for. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so some other stuff is that uh, the transmission with toggling the GPIO with our PyTX is incredibly noisy and inefficient. Uh, so we're looking at exploring building our own shield for the Raspberry Pi with an actual FM transmitter. Not an NVIDIA shield. If you're, no, not no, an NVIDIA different. shield. Okay. That's a different um, segment. So uh, I've actually ordered some hardware to start down that path, and I'm not happy with it, but it's at least a start for a prototype. 
Uh, and the other ones is to potentially port to some other platforms like Windows 10 IoT, <laughs> uh, the Orange Pi, uh, and the ability to do the real-time encoding like we are now on ARM 7 uh, with the ARM 6 devices such as the uh, Raspberry Pi Zero at 5 bucks. And the other one, the crazy super idea that I was thinking about, and we have no idea if this is even possible, um, we're effectively toggling the GPIO pin to do FM broadcast uh, with the RPI-TX project using uh, pulse width modulation, so PWM. But on modern motherboards to control fan speed, they also use PWM. So I'm wondering if there's a way to directly interact with the motherboard to control fan speed from the operating system via PWM so that you can conceivably use the PWM for fan control to do the same thing. We have no idea if it's even possible. That was one of those super crazy. Would that make Galen a fanboy? (laughs) (laughs) I think it would. Yes. Yes, it would. I see. So wait, Haskell (laughs) is like Erlang. Erlang. It's a functional Sorry. It works. Yep. Sorry. It's oh, functional. Oh, it's fun. You've got to move off of that. I can't. Come on, man. Can't. All right. Stuck. Let's continue. Let's see the demo. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's get Galen like to, uh, to, to give us a demo, and uh, I'll let's, have him narrate let's as well. hear the demo. All right. I'm going to share my screen here. Gentlemen in the back room, would you be so kind as to switch to Galen? All right. Yay. Are we on? We're on. I see GQRX. Yes. I see an EKG. So this is GQRX. And I'm going to be using this to decode the signal. So kind of the path the signals is going to take is, it, is it's going to come out of my Raspberry Pi. Um, GQRX here is going to receive it and do the FM demodulation for me and send that data over UDP to my receiver, which is actually going to decode that data. So nothing going on here. That's just noise. And let's switch over here. So top terminal is the Raspberry Pi. Bottom terminal is my computer. And the first thing we need to do is start receiving data. I, I just want to say nicely done on the, the display that I can read that, <laughs> and it's it's very nicely laid out. Thank you yes. for that. He's a badass. <laughs> so, um, very nice. <laughs> hey, have you heard of the Subaru Elite hacking tool called Tmux? <laughs> <laughs> is that like screen? It is. It's exactly like screen. <laughs> like screen, but you can split horizontally. Boom. <laughs> Sorry, man, I had to. You're blowing anyway. Paul's mind. Yep. So now this is receiving data and um, from GQRX over here. Yep, and so GQRX up- is sending signal over UDP to the receiver. Exactly. So over so here, I can know start when you're transmitting, done transmitting, and I just but have you don't a, know if yeah, it's been received. So how do you know when just, you're done transmitting? Just wait. Yep. Okay. So in this case, um, knowing when we're done transmitting is manual, and that's because streaming doesn't quite work yet on the decoder, and that's actually something that I'll probably get done in the next day or two. So I'll just transmit some words right now, so I'll just say, hello, everyone, I guess. It should be hello, world. It should be Hack the Gibson. Well, he does, he, there you go. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Hello, everyone. I guess we should hack the Gibson. There you go. There you go. Thank you. All right, so what this is going to do is this uh, script I've written nicely wraps up encoding that and then transmitting that. So now that's transmitting. And over here, we can look at the frequency spectrum as it starts Whoa, sending the data. That, something just happened. Yep. Drop bass in your face. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and unfortunately, Jeff, it doesn't look like we can hear it. 
Yeah, I don't think Skype does uh, audio over screen share. All right, so that's done, and then we can press that's enter right. over here. I could, I could tell the signal was going up. Yeah. So he had entered his received the transmission and wow. decoded it, and sure enough, hacked the Gibson. So not only applause everybody, not only Yay. does it work for ASCII-based transmission, we can also do binaries. Yeah. Can you do GIFs, like animated GIFs? Galen, take so it away, my friend. PNG. I think a GIF uh, might be for an animated. <laughs> well, it's 2,000 baud. We want the demo to be done today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've got this uh, large-ish PNG file that I'm going to receive. And so in this case, for the receiver, I'm going to tell it to dump the output to a file. Instead of to the terminal. PNGs don't look really great in the terminal. <laughs> Not quite. And so now that's encoding the PNG. And once the uh, once it barfs on our screen, then it started transmitting. There it goes. GQRX. Yep. There we go. So this one does take a little bit longer because the well, yeah, size more is a little larger. Yeah, um, this one will take roughly twice as long. Yep. And uh, the, lar- the reason why it takes twice as long from just a short period of text to the uh, PNG, which is larger uh there's a lot of padding and all of the addition of the recovery blocks yes so there's a a minimum block size question i mean obviously if you were monitoring this you would see the activity but your contention is nobody's just monitoring this frequency exactly exactly all right so he received a PNG. Yeah. I would say in the spec uh, on the the spectrum of what uh, people monitor, <laughs> pun intended, yes. in terms of radio frequencies, that FM transmissions fall somewhere like on a scale of one to ten in like negative fifty. Yeah, exactly. But this is just the beginning because you can reinvent uh, frequency hopping ne- next. Conceivably, and Joff, exactly. and Joff yeah, that's con- a great point, Jeff. Great point. Yeah. Joff, Joff, you had, had a comment coming? back there. Oh, my comment back there was the uh, on the spectrum of frequency monitoring. That is true, except if you're Jeff Mann or anybody else with a signals background, then you sure as shit are going to be monitoring it. <laughs> yep. So you can see I actually have a uh, wrong size here. And what that means is that it missed the second block. And this is why retransmitting is important, because even with the error correction, yep. the pie is kind of not that great. So mm-hmm. being able to retransmit ends up being really important. Yep, so we're effectively going to do a repeat of the transmission manually. So, you, you, yeah, you need to broadcast it several times. and, and... Yep. It's like a network yep. with a, a lot of retransmissions or yep. collisions on back when we had shared hub networking. Right, right. It yeah. was but, slower. But, but, of course, we have no ability to say, hey, there was a collision or we missed one. Yeah, yeah. So, so you just yeah, <laughs> you so just have to wait. Right. So even for the slower than that. the demo, yeah, I'm you. telling it to retransmit manually, but... In a production environment, this would actually just be, you know, looping on a script. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So, Larry, you you had gone to the trouble of saying what the FCC does in terms of regulating FM. Have yep. you looked into the other frequency ranges? I mean, are they are they also regulated or? So yes, uh, we can do anything in the industrial, scientific, and medical band, uh, which hey. is like, hey, that you could have chose a better. Never mind. <laughs> I could have. He did. Well, he had a better one before, and I liked it. Paul wanted. Paul wanted to see boobs. I wanted something with high resolution and low file size, and oh, you're limited. Yeah. No, on that, make, that makes sense. That. that makes yeah. sense. But it, conceivably, you could use two point four and just do your own 
not 802.11, but you can use the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum because it's an open frequency to do yes. transmission. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but that's but, which is more likely to be monitored. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it, more, it might more, look weird. More likely, someone, more likely to be monitored with uh, spectrum analysis, especially with folks that are doing 2.4 gigahertz networks. But you, you need to do spectrum, not 802.11 monitoring like most people do. You need yeah. to do spectrum, spectrum analysis. analysis. And then when we do this in a look, stomp, what was that tool? Wi-Spy. Yep. When yeah. this stomps all over someone's wireless network and also inter- it gets interference from someone's wireless network. You're going to draw attention to yourself. Or right. not have a reliable transmission. Because in this case, we've picked an FM broadcast range that is not in use. Mm. Right. So, so that's, the that, there's an anomaly is, there. Go ahead, Gallon. How, how yep. far off is FM from the Wi-Fi 802.11 uh, yeah, frequency what, what frequency? Uh, frequency range for FM is between like 88 and 108 megahertz. And Wi-Fi is 2.4 gigahertz. gigahertz or 5.8 gigahertz. And the Pi can't even get up that high. Yeah. No. Yeah. But I'm thinking go in the other direction. Go HF. Go MF. Go LF. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So we can go down to <clears throat> Galen. The Pi will actually transmit from what frequency ranges? According to our Pi TX's um, readme, 5 kilohertz to 450 megahertz. So we can get way down there. Five kilohertz, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, but uh, and we, and so Jeff, yeah, absolutely, there the VLF range. I mean, because the lower frequency, the the more distance, distance. you have, to absolutely, absolutely. So, so wait, uh, sorry, lower frequency, uh, penetrating through walls or concrete yes. is better. better. Correct. Yes. Better. Yeah. Okay. And Better. over longer distance, even with free open line of sight. The other I have this conversation with my wife all the time because yeah. she's uh, ultrasound sound tech. tech. So we talk about frequency. This is what, yeah. When I was a kid, Paul, and we used to listen to AM radio, you know, like on a weekend night, we could turn on the AM radio, and I lived in Maryland, still live in Maryland. We could sometimes pick up radio broadcasting from Chicago. Yep. The, yep. On the AM range. Right, because it would, uh, it would do skip and either skip off the ionosphere or bounce yeah. off the clouds. And AM gets a lot better range, but the Raspberry Pi can't do, do amplitude, amplitude modulation. The hardware is just not capable. Right, because uh, it's the toggling of the GPIO pin for the square wave. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, what's uh, Pi good for then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, I, and J- Jeff, I know you're going to ask the question, what's the distance? And, well, quite honestly, we didn't test the distance, but based on some feedback oh, from we other folks. Oh, we were out in the desert I and know, stuff. but based on the feedback from other users of our Pi TX that we didn't develop, um, we're talking potentially 100 meters or longer. Uh, one of the gentlemen that we ran into said he hung this off of his apartment building <laughs> in downtown L.A. Uh, and was able Fire. to uh, cover an entire city block in L.A., which is pretty good. But because the hardware is so cheap in both cases, you can plug an RTL SDR into a Pi with your cheap piece of wire and have Vapor Trail do the reception write to a directory, and then VaporTrail says, oh, hey, this file's in this directory, and can transmit it. So you can create a repeater yep. for under, like, $35 type deal. And you just need to be in the parking lot, essentially. <clears throat> right. Or somewhere close by. Right. Or find some place to drop a repeater mm-hmm. that you can power off of USB battery. And have a 4G connection back to, or like, another anywhere. Pi or whatever. Yeah, yeah, another, yeah multiple yeah. layers of repeaters. Uh, well, you know, and isn't that an advantage of, of FM as well? Because at that frequency, you're, you're actually going to get through walls a little bit easier than, you know, 2.7 gig. Uh, mm-hmm. sorry, yeah, it has a tough time four with gigs. walls. Uh, you know, when 2.4 gig hits uh, walls and trees and crap, it gets absorbed. So. Yep. The only the only detractor, Joff, is that uh, for the FCC, for the consumer, you can do so low power that it 
it's also uh, a challenge there because uh, the 2.4 yeah. gigahertz stuff is uh, significantly higher. Uh, one watt indoors, four watts outdoors. Yeah, Max. So now all your code is available in open source. Absolutely, hey, absolutely. What's what's a watt between friends? That's I true. know. <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> yes. Ah. Yeah. So absolutely. What am I doing? So Galen, awesome, awesome demo. Thank you. It <laughs> Good works. job, Galen. It Good job, Larry. Hey, and uh, so Galen. real quick, uh, gentlemen, if Get you help. go back to my screen share. Yeah, if you got to give my screen share real quick, um, yes, to uh, give you guys. Who did the awesome graphics for your presentation? I did. <laughs> Job. Oh, that was um, Larry. Yeah, so if you guys. Wow, that is spectacular, <laughs> Larry. Wait, just wa- wait, wait, wait a minute. So, absolutely. Uh, so, this was the end of our, our thing. I don't know why the. Anim- oh, there's the animated GIF. All right, so now time for us to meet and greet and talk to people about you know, questions. <laughs> and even better. Wait, and then it goes to the final slide. Ah, so yes. Yeah, so vaportrail.io gives you a li- it's a really cheesy website I did in Notepad. Um, so it talks about a little bit about the project and gives you the link to the video of this presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, we left the file size small so that you can see all the slides and you can press pause if you want to read it. Um, as well as uh, a link to uh, the Vapor Trail project. Did you create all those graphics? Up. No, no. You, you stole them from somewhere? Well, they came pretty from the internet. Sh- pretty sure those are stolen. Yeah. Those are screen caps from actual the, the My Little Pony show. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> and and Vapor Trail, this pony with the glasses, that's Vapor Trail. Oh, wait. Uh, the character's name in the show is Vapor Trail? Yes. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> well, so well, awesome. Ga- Galen is a huge fan, and he was oh, the one I that did all see. the whole work, all the work, so we named the project after something he's a huge fan of. Is Galen going to stick around for the next segment? It's entirely up to him. We're going to news stories, time. and it's going to be <laughs> raunchy and hilarious, and I think you have the great wit for it. Uh, sure. <laughs> all right. I, With I that, vaportrail.io, we're going to take a short break, come back and talk about security news for this week. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. IT Pro TV is the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. IT Pro TV's team solution provides group pricing and access to their supervisor portal. You'll gain full control over your team's training schedule, see individual and group analytics, and more. IT Pro TV does IT Live every day, so you know you're getting the most current IT training. Go to itpro.tv forward slash security weekly and use the code SW30 to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription to learn more about it pro tv's team solution sign up for a free demo of their supervisor portal has your network been breached cyber reason can help you answer this question cyber reason products hunt for threats within your network and eliminate them in real time to cyber reason real time means within seconds founded by former military hackers who don't play by the rules they've built this experience into their platform harness ingenuity and imagination not just code to defeat attackers Cyber Reason. Disrupt the adversary and let the hunt begin. Logarithm's Netmon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. Netmon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use Netmon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns and application usage, and quickly analyze full packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit logarithm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. 
Endgame automates the hunt for both known and never-before-seen adversaries in enterprise networks. Built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools, techniques, and tactics, Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents, detects, and responds to advanced adversaries in the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge. Endgame. Automate the hunt. So, uh, welcome back, everyone, to Paul Security Weekly. This is Security News. Very excited. Before we get started... uh, Quick announcement, Wild West Hackenfest, Wild West Hackenfest, H-A-C-K-I-N-Fest.com. Make sure you go there. Awesome conference. John is going to dress up, John Strand, like a cowboy for the conference. He promises. He promises. So that, I mean, yep. we're going to hold him to that. Uh, it's going to be awesome. He better. That, that he is better. John Strand in the image, by the way. Have you noticed that little face? Yes. yes. That's yes. John right there. And he right. loves that image. He absolutely now, loves it. The other announcement that I had that I think I forgot in the beginning was the T-shirts that say, not this one from Logarithm, one of our sponsors, which is just awesome. Um, the T-shirts that we had that said, we drink because you don't change your default passwords. Mm-hmm. Lots it. of comments on social media. Everyone wants them. Here's the thing. We only do merchandising at conferences. So you mm-hmm. have to come. It's one of our like things. Like We encourage people to come out to conferences, to come see us. We do a number of shows in all regions of the country, sometimes the world. Come see us at the conference. We we choose like what we believe are great conferences to go to. The next conference we will be at will be DerbyCon. Where we will have our merchandise. Um, some free, some for sale. Yep. Uh, it's kind of a mixture. And it depends on what venue that you're at as to whether you know what we're charging yeah. and, and, and what is on sale and what we just kind of give out for free. Um, so if you want one of those shirts, we do not maintain an online store. And I, ap- I apologize, but I feel bad. Like, um, I, I, I just, I, we're not in the business of selling merchandise online. Like, that's not our business. Right. We, you, we used to. We, we used found to. that it didn't work. We found that we're much better at just doing podcasts. And really, we're just like, our strong suit is sitting around and drinking and talking about security. Yep. And that's pretty much what we focus on. Now, now that said, Paul, you could probably hire someone to do all that. The problem is, is that the, the counting doesn't work. Well, it, that, and it's just, it's not, a, our mission is to deliver podcasts, right? And I want to say no, on that, It's not to deliver t-shirts. Correct. Right. Correct. Correct. Well, we're not, we we're not think geek is what I'm saying. Like right. Uh, essentially, we're Security Weekly. We like to do podcast. We love to do podcasts. And, uh, we're going to continue to do that and make our merchandise available um, at conferences because yep. we want to. And the other thing is, I want to encourage people to go to conferences, and, and we partner people. with and work with conferences and submit talks to conferences and speak at conferences where people ask us and they're nice people putting on a great venue. Right. So when you see us at a conference, it's because we're behind that conference a hundred percent. And we want to talk to people. Yes. And network. And, the next time we'll be at a conference that we love and support is DerbyCon. Absolutely. Uh, and that's where you can get Gail, the, now. Galen will be at DerbyCon. That's awesome. Yes, I will. I'm looking forward we to meeting you in person. We get really bored talking amongst ourselves. Yeah, please, that. Please and, come out and talk to us. Uh, you know, uh, the other thing is that with our uh, merchandise, I have been known when people ask, if they contact me, that I will just, I'll send you something. Yeah. Like, Dude, I love those stickers. What's your address? Yeah. Like if people people write in with, with commentary or they're like, I have been watching the show since the early, early 
select people. Select mm-hmm. people. With awesome comments. and so Our good friend Whitney, who just said twins. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you get whatever you want. Like, you're just <laughs> <telling> your <laughs> size. Be like, creative. You yep. just had twins. You have three children. Like, hey, dude, you get whatever you want. And, right? and she has listened pretty much from day one. Because we, I'm, we've I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure she yeah. gave birth to the twins in a Security Weekly hoodie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> right. So the, there are people that write in that we have been known to to give stuff to because they're just awesome, loyal listeners. Mm-hmm. But that's pretty much it. So right now, the way we're moving forward is if you want our stuff, come see us at a conference, or yep. if you happen to send us a message right. and whatever. We'll, you'll not see. everyone. Like, don't think you can send us an email and you automatically get a T-shirt. Yep. Probably not going to happen, um, but it, and we have limited supplies. Like what we're printing now is limited sizes, limited styles. It's all very limited run. Right. Uh, right. Same thing with the glassware. Like Larry, you have this. You know, yep. shall we play a game? We're, we're like all out of like this. Might be the one of like three glasses that we keep here in the studio. Maybe the hosts all have one glass for their own personal collection. Yep, I agree. Pretty I much have it. one. Challenge coins are very limited, numbered. We yep. gave them out to special people yep. uh, at the recent conferences uh, at Black Hat and DEF CON. We'll have a v- limited number to give out at, yep. at DerbyCon. We might you, do a give, more general To give you an though. idea, I am a co-founder and continued member of this show. And do you know Been how here many, since episode one. And do you know how many coins that I How had, many did Sam get? Sam's the keeper of all the you, swag, do, do by you know, the way. Do you know how many coins Sam gave me to give away? And Sam has been delegated with the keeper of the swag. If you need any Security Weekly swags, Sam is who you Do you, do you know how many Sam gave me? Ten? Five. Five. Plus oh, wow, mine. yeah. <laughs> Plus mine. Wow. And I didn't give that away. So they are very limited. Yes. And they're numbered. Hey, now, yep. speaking of DerbyCon, uh, I think um, I think all of us are going to be there. Well, I am. I know you are, Paul. Right? I, uh, and I've been talking, I think it was with you, Joff, over text messages. We were talking about having Sam do something special for us. Because Sam is like our, we dubbed her our con mom. Yes. <laughs> like, she keeps us, we didn't have a Sam in our lives before. Now we have a now Sam. Sam is our con mom. Mm-hmm. If Sam's not there, we're like, what, what should we be doing? What are we, what are we doing? What do we do? We don't know what we're doing. Because Sam, Sam was not here today. Jay is our con mom. Yes. <laughs> Jay, wow. That's, Jay, yeah. Jay Beals. <laughs> Jay Beals our con mom. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yep. Jay, is well, very well, well, Jay is our con mom, but he often delegates that to Suzanne. Yeah. <laughs> so Suzanne is, so when Suzanne is at a con, Suzanne is our con mom. Yeah, because there needs to be someone with organizational skills. Yes. Because uh, typically us hackers, creative thinkers, mm-hmm. programmers, software engineers, hackers, like we're not very yep. good at the organizational logistics yep. kind of thing. And to, to, to the point. We need a con mom. To, to, the, to the point about coming to the cons and meeting people. Do you know how many talks I saw at DEF CON? Zero. Well, does closing ceremonies count as a talk? Mm, <laughs> half. You get half credit. So I got half a, I got half a talk at DEF CON. Do you know why? Because I spent the entire remaining portion of my con either working on a presentation in our room with Galen or talking to people. Hallway yeah. con. The, lobby the, con. The awesome part for me was to see uh, the newer Security Weekly employees that were like shaking hands and hugging people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, who, who is it? Like they were already forming relationships in the community. Yes. That was the like one of the biggest wins for me going to yeah. the recent Black Hat and DEF CON. That was awesome. Uh, also, Sam was on vacation uh, today. 
and we wrapped her chair in bubble wrap just because. Yeah, she won't be. We, she's it's her birthday. She's out. She's going to come in tomorrow morning, and yes, her chair is going to be very comfortable. Because that's how we roll here at Security Weekly. We roll bubble wrap. We roll bubble wrap. Yes, it was. It's really Mark and I, which are a very bad combination of doing stuff like Dear that. Dear God, Mark and I conspired to do a lot of very things like that around here mm-hmm. in the office, which is a lot of fun. Okay, moving on to the second con, though, I have to ask how many of us are going to be at uh, Wild West Hackenfest? I know I am. Anybody else? Mm. Me. I booked my flights today. Awesome. I'll be there. Speaking. And I also also send in my talk abstract. DerbyCon, Wild West Hackenfest, Sans Pentest Hackfest are pretty much the three shows once a month that will round us out for the year. So if you want to come see us, hang out. Uh, I hung with a lot of listeners at DEF CON. Absolutely. Some yep. some people were like, hey, you know, how you doing, Paul? And they're like, I want to meet and get career advice. I'm like, yeah, tomorrow let's go to the cigar lounge and, and do that. They're like, yeah, sure. Like that's You don't have to smoke cigars, but you have to put up with cigar smoke. That's yep. right. But the, and yep. that's yep. one of the reasons that's to right. go to cons is yep. to meet and hang out with people. That face-to-face communication is so important. Mm-hmm. And I, I put out a tweet. It, it, it just so happened that a lot of the new friends I made at, at Black Hat and DEF CON were, were female, and I'm like, girl power, like, pound sign girl power. Yeah. Like, it was, it was all, it was great meeting with, with everyone there. Yeah. Um, um, so, cool. And to that, you know, you know how I roll at DEF CON. It's very, you can't tie me down to a plan because you never well, know where I'm going to get You're mingling. That's fine. Because yeah, I mingle. mingle. Yeah. And it was, it was very much this year, um, in, aside from a few select cases, I had nowhere to be at any specific time. And... I also didn't beg for a single party invite. Mm. I didn't seek out a spe- any specific party invite. I didn't participate in badge life, which is the whole thing where this whole electronic badge thing totally exploded, and it's awesome, and it's awesome to see the creativity. And you know what? I didn't receive a specific invite to a party. I didn't receive a s- specific badge, purchased or otherwise. And I talked to so many awesome people, including... One of my friends that says, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just hanging out, talking to folks. He's like, you want to go try some bourbon? I'm like, yeah, hey. absolutely. Come with me. And we ended up at um, uh, the uh, SE Village party. Mm-hmm. And they did a huge bourbon tasting. And I met all sorts of crazy new people there. You, you know what Ping said to me uh, previously today on Enterprise Security Weekly? Because I was telling him, like, I feel like I don't have... Like, I make a plan, and I'm not able to execute on it, and mm-hmm. I don't see as many people. She's like, your problem is you have a plan. Yes. And you did it right. Yes. Like, sometimes not having a plan yep. takes you to those new yep. It's one of those, you get to walk down the hallway, and yeah. someone says, Larry! And you turn around, and you stop, and you talk to some dude for 10 minutes. Yeah. No, yeah. That's, that's the way to do it. Yep. It is. Exactly. I like that. I like that. I'm going to take that approach, too, Larry. I think uh, just, just getting out there. Uh, at Derby this year, uh, certainly at Wild Wood Attack and Fest, well, because that's our show, but... A uh, lot of mingling. We're gonna. We're just gonna. I, I want to say thank you to our listeners as well. It was really awesome to meet as many listeners mm-hmm. as I did uh, wherever we were. Um, you know, Mark and Sam were with me on this trip, and we were like everywhere from the vendor area at DefCon to like in line on the Southwest flight. You know, to or from, into you like ran into someone. That just shook my hand and said thank you. Like you know, you guys, yeah. Yeah, everyone's yep. awesome. Yep. That, and, that listens to the and, show. And I so think thank you for that. And and I don't know if that's been different for you that year, Paul. But for me, many years prior has been that it has been very difficult to walk from one place to another without being stopped ten or twelve times and saying thank you so much for the podcast. We love it. It's so it's hard to it's, come home from that 
and like do things like clean up poop because <laughs> <laughs> like it's really like it brings you back down to earth. It's good that I have yeah. this experience because it brings me back down to earth. Because Shannon was kind of my wife was joking with me. She's like, "Yeah, you come home," and she's like, "I'll put you back in your, in your place." And I'm like, "Yeah, thank you for that." I like yep. so that's good. That's yep. good to have that balance, yep. right? Yeah, like, for, yeah exactly. Yeah. So for the record, you go to con and everyone's stopping you, like, "Oh, you know, you're Larry from Security yeah, yeah. Weekly." Like, it's so nice to meet you. And you go home and you're like, "Yeah, I, I changed diapers." Like people, yeah, like, sometimes I think like lose sight of like. No, we're humans. Like, we're like we're real humans. people too. Like, 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 like today, like we, that whole thing at Con and today, Galen and I were on a conference call, or Galen and I were on a call doing uh, doing our daily update call, and I'm like, dude, I I got to call you back in like five minutes because <laughs> yep. the two kids were screaming at each other because <laughs> one of them had gotten her bag of slime that they the homemade slime that they had made, and the bag ex- slime. and the bag exploded and was all oh, over the no. carpet and all over her, and she's like, and the four year old, and she's crying because her slime is everywhere. And at least it was slime and not poop. Because yes. I had to clean poop out of a robotic <laughs> vacuum, yeah. which you haven't lived until you've cleaned poop out of a robotic. But vacuum. I had to clean glitter off the carpet, which is also kind of like Vegas. Yeah, but it doesn't smell. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. The smell is like glitter's still there. Yeah, the glitter's still fucking there. Oh, the soap, on the other hand, that the slime is made with, so isn't cleaner. Right I want to lead into this uh, yes. segment with a particular story. And this one happens to come from uh, be rooted in the federal government and their proposed bill or and or law that uh, wants to improve IoT security. Now, I, I've got an analogy which I'll talk about. But so this proposed law, which is called the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act, is mission is to make sure that devices that are sold to the U.S. government, so it's not a consumer thing, yep. it's specific to the U.S. government, these devices, and I quote, must be patched for security flaws, also requires that IoT vendors not include hard-coded password on devices that cannot be changed. It also directs vendors to ensure the devices not include any known vulnerabilities and that any device uses industry-standard protocols for connectivity and encryption. Now, my uh, analogy to this as I smoke a cigar is that when we review cigars, we talk about three different elements of a cigar that as I've gone through the cigar industry, people have told me that's not like a reviewable thing, that these are table stakes. The cigar must have good burn, draw, and construction. Very simply, that means you burn, means you've got to be able to light it on fire, and it stays yep. on fire. Yep. Draw is that I can actually puff on it and get <laughs> you smoke. Got to be able to smoke, right? Construction means it doesn't fall apart when I, I smoke it. Yep. And I, I gave this analogy before, and I want to give it again because I think it's very analogous to to what's happening in, in in Congress. These are table stakes. That the fact that my cigar has good burn, draw, and construction is table stakes. It means that I can actually smoke the cigar. That's its intended right. purpose. <laughs> it means I can buy an IoT device and it does what it says it's going to do. And it's going to work. Right. I'm going to buy a cigar. I'm going to be able to smoke it. I'm going to buy an IoT device and it's going to, to, to connect work to my network and be a camera. And not be affected by either internal or external conditions that cause it to not work work it's why you can go buy a tv and it doesn't catch fire like our iot devices should not catch fire unlike a cigar which is intended to catch fire 
uh, and maybe not burn too quickly, whatever. But these are very similar requirements, and they are table stakes. The fact that we need a freaking law that says IoT devices should not have hard-coded passwords and all these other things that we've talked about for years on this show is really kind of sad. That this needs to be like in written words inside of a law that says you shouldn't hard code a password. They can't be changed inside of a device completely is yeah, just mind boggling. But, but Paul, but Paul, you gotta understand the government is the ones that, you know, made McDonald's put on their coffee cups caution contents are hot yeah because somebody bought one and spilled it in their lap and it burned them and they sued and what that's but that's different that's like saying that is not different. but no it is different because when i say when i smoke a cigar like if i put the lit end in my mouth like it burns <laughs> if i take a coffee and i dump it in my lap it's going to burn that's which different from move, which Audie. so now your cigars may need a, a warning label that says caution hot well, it, it, well, mind me. So remember when? <laughs> remember when? It, it remind, uh, I can't believe I'm just about to admit this publicly. But remember when we had a party at DefCon in one of the skyboxes when yep. there were such things as skyboxes? Yeah. And um, Chris Nickerson, uh, who's awesome, I love, I love yes. Chris and his wife. They're just the most adorable couple. I haven't face seen, it. I haven't seen Chris in a long time. I oh hope my god! I, I hope him, I can see him at Derby and his his wife. They're just the most adorable couple on the planet. And and Chris is a super nice guy. He uh, was trying to light a cigarette. He didn't have a lighter, and he's like, "Can I borrow your cigar?" And I'm like, "Yeah, here's my cigar." He lit a cigarette, handed it back to me. But when he handed it back to me, it was like backwards uh, when he handed it back to me. And when uh, I went to go put it back in my mouth, I put the lit end in my mouth. And like without anyone noticing, I'm not. I don't think Chris ever noticed this, and I never admitted this to him until now. I put the lit end back in my mouth. I was like, "Oh my god!" And like I kind of just played it off. I'm like, took a sip of my drink or whatever, and I was like, "Oh, everything's cool. Thanks, Chris. Everything's Enjoy fine. Everything's, everything's fine. fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> it's fine." But like, it doesn't need to include a warning label. You should know, Jeff. To your yeah. point, it's like the like the the warnings on a Swedish chainsaw. Seriously, it says, do not use on hands or genitals. <laughs> like, do you know why they had to put that there? Because someone actually used a hand chainsaw on their hands and genitals. That's very scary. So that's my point, Jeff, is that there's common sense things, and there's things that we expect to be there. The fact that it needs to be a law means I really think that we've deviated from outside of the normal operating procedures for I- IoT devices that there are things that we should just inherently expect when we buy But the problem is, is that now that we're requiring a law to determine those things that we inherently oh, expect. But, but wait, isn't, isn't the law just reactive to failure? I mean, that's what's really yeah. happening here. Yep. I mean, the law is just completely reactive to failure, which arguably is what pretty much all legislation is. Reactive to failure. Yeah, right? we have a, we now have laws in many of the states that doesn't don't allow you to use a handheld device or text while you drive because of failure. But the difference is, it, it's the, some of the things we've talked about are how users interact with the product, right? Like I can injure my genitals with a chainsaw. I can smoke a cigar <laughs> the wrong don't. way. I can take an IoT device and use it in a very insecure way. Mm-hmm. However, what we've talked about in, with respect to IoT or really any product is that when you get it, there's a certain level of expectation that it's not going to function incorrectly when 
we take it out of the box, yep. right? Or take it out of the wrapper or whatever we're doing, right? Like, I expect when I take a cigar out of the, the cellophane or the box or whatever it comes in, that it's going to behave in a certain way. But, there, but there's, a big, there's a big distinction to me, to me made, Paul. Um, operating properly or functioning properly is a whole lot different than operating in any modicum of a secure manner. Which most consumers are clueless about. Now, now, so that said, Paul can buy a cigar that has table table stakes. It yes, right. Lights on fire, burn draw construction, burn draw construction. Yeah. Yet, as clearly evident by prior to the podcast, what you do with it after it's been made by the manufacturer com- completely different. You can get bloom. You can get you could cigar beetles, incor- right? You exactly. can get cigar beetles. You right. can leave it in a dry room in the middle of the desert for 10, ten years. And as released from the manufacturer, doesn't fall apart, leave it in that dry room in the desert for 10 years, you're going to look at it and it's going to fall apart. Or you put it in some place that's too humid and it's not going to draw because it's full of holes from the beetle. Yeah, or, where are you going with this? So you could drop your cell phone in a fucking pool and it's going to not work. I mean, for Christ's sake, Larry. Yeah, but we <laughs> expect when, when we get a cell phone that there's not some hard-coded back door that lets anyone... Right. We gain access we, to our no, phones. We, don't, so we you, don't think about that. We, the average consumer, are clueless about that. We don't expect the cigar when we buy it from the store to have cigar beetles in it already. Right. Yes. The, this is true. Maybe. Pre, pre-engineered defect, yeah. Yes. I, I get you. Yeah. Pre-engineered, yeah. And this meaning knowing I know nothing about cigars. But, it, but, <laughs> but it's I a can good do point because in the industry, there are um, there's actually special freezers that they put the cigars in mm-hmm. that bring it down to... A particular temperature that to kills kill the, the cigar beetles and larvae, which I, I didn't realize actually kills the larvae and the beetles, yep. and does not damage the cigar, so that when you get it, you have that positive experience mm-hmm. until such time you act irresponsibly and put it in a hundred percent humidity environment. I rest my case. Which then, when you light it on 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 fire, the heat causes it to expand even more. Your Honor, essentially, the defense rests. An exploding <laughs> cigar at that point. <laughs> Yes. <clears throat> yes. Speaking, I, I think there's a reasonable expectation of functional capability that we should have in IoT devices or really any device that we buy, and security needs to be part of that, I guess is my I, point. I agree security needs to be part of it, but I don't think that's a reasonable expectation out, you know, prima facie. I, I think that's something that has to be regulated and, and legislated and built into it. I, I don't necessarily agree, Jeff. I mean, the, the legislation is reactive. Look, other, other software entities have been very successful in um, uh, admittedly reactive as well, but in responding to threats, the IoT space has not. And so they got the hammer, and the hammer is the regulation. But uh, Well, we could argue this for quite a long time. Maybe we'll save this for South Dakota. <laughs> yeah, oh, awesome. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, I, uh, I think it's a great talk. Anyway. So speaking of IoT, at DEF CON, I ran across this thing, uh, the IoT security analysis tool. And I look at it, and I went to the page at uh, kitpoint.com. It's the Asto IO Network security uh, analysis tool. And I look at it, and it's got these all really neat graphs and stuff. And, you know, it's based on Electron and uh, Cytoscape uh, JS and uh, icons from material design. And I have no idea what the fuck it does. (laughs) 
Really? And I go to look look at the wiki, and I, do you want to find out how the app works? Check the wiki. And I'm like, uh, it's under development, and uh, welcome to the apparatus wiki. And it's a framework to facilitate security analysis and IoT systems to make usage. Uh, um, so, 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 Larry, have you let Galen look at it yet? So the apparatus framework provides a modeling language and analysis procedures for an IoT system during the following phases. Design phase, the model of the idea. The design phase state. The implementation phase and the implement phase, implementation phase state. Mike, this is fucking useless. <laughs> wow. To me, and maybe someone that needs to not do default passwords. Well, I suggest segue. One of, well, <laughs> in, in one of my soapbox, and the reason when you started, you and Galen started your technical segment, I asked you what problem are you What's solving? What's the problem to solve? Yep. And how tall do you need to be to ride this ride? Yeah, like those yeah. questions yeah. from Michael Sandra Kendall, yeah. right? Like, Absolutely. It, not just what problem do you solve, but when you're creating a tool uh, or some kind of vulnerability or exploit or, or technique, like why do people care, right? right. And, and that's something I would, wouldn't necessarily ask people in vendor space or companies in vendor space, but when you create a tool, I think you need to... First, when you're presenting your research or tool or technique, think about what problem you solve and um, like the use case for your particular technology. I Why would, do I we care? Like let's let's put it this way. Question. Let's put yeah. it this way. I have listened to this podcast and to for Michael to say yes. that enough that those were the first two things that we answered on the first slide. You did it right. <laughs> yes. Good job. Whether whether or not Galen knew it, we had massive input from industry to state that what we were doing those was actually the, yeah. valid. Jeff? I, I would like to see the question asked in, in addition to what problem do you solve, what problems do you create? That's a valid, it's a very yeah. valid question. Yeah. When we're talking about developing attack tools or frameworks, mm-hmm. what exposures or problems do you create? Yep. And Jeff, I think with, with Vapor Trail, there's a potential that we could have created a, uh, an issue where, where's the detection technology for something like this? There's no commercial offering. Yeah. How do well, we stop data yeah, from it's being in a museum. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's not, it wouldn't necessarily work with the way we need it to work nowadays. Yep. So. Yep. Oh boy. Do we want to trans? Do we want to shift to? Uh, I think we need to talk news? about the elephant in the room. Let's do Vo- it. Voting machines? No, no, no. Want to cry? Yeah. Yes. Let's let's yeah. cry. What the hell? Your story number <laughs> six. Also included. Oh, and, yes. and number eight. Your story number nine. My story number five with late breaking news. Uh, so bring us bring us up to date. Yes. Varying levels of journalism happening in computer security. Thank you, Michael Mimoso, for reporting correctly from a threat post and having a very uh, – the writing style from Michael is, is very nice. Uh, and I thank you for that because that's not always the case. Marcus Hutchins, um, who is the person who – Basically discovered that the domain name Killswitch in WannaCry existed yep. and registered the domain name for $10. Yeah, it, it was not registered. He registered it. Right. And uh, was arrested for previously. He, went, he was arrested leaving DEFCON at the airport to return back to the UK. 
Wow. In- and was yeah. captured by U.S. Marshals and quickly transferred to FBI custody. Interesting. To the point that folk, he was in U.S. Marshals custody. The next morning, folks went to go visit him. Mm-hmm. And he was no longer in U.S. Marshals custody. And U.S. Marshals says, "Who the hell is he? We don't have him in our system." He was, he was already, already gone in the FBI. He was already gone. Uh, well, because he violated fed, U.S. federal law and was transferred to FBI custody, which makes yes. sense. He was charged with creating and distributing the Kronos banking malware. Yep. Uh, he was From. known online as malware malware tech. He is a UK citizen <clears throat> and is being indicted for distributing malware under the CFAA. Yep. And nearly immediately after he was arrested and the story broke, I don't know what the exact time frame was, um, the, there are folks monitoring the Bitcoin wallets mm-hmm. of the destinations for WannaCry. $140,000 or $50,000? The entire oh, contents yep. of the WannaCry Bitcoin wallets have been transferred in the last 24 hours. Yep, yep, I saw that. Hmm. Oh, you think they're related? You tell me. The guy that finds the WannaCry kill switch gets arrested for Trojan, and then all of a sudden the money disappears in the same day. That's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. See, if only any of us were conspiracy theorists. Yeah. I was going to say, cue the spooky music. Yeah, Galen, what do you think? (laughs) Honestly, like... It seems, I wonder, sorry. <laughs> Start again. Is this the guy that made WannaCry, basically, or is it just he happened to make something else and it's a coincidence that he found the kill switch, right? Or is it not a coincidence and he wrote it right. and he knew what the kill switch was and went, oh, fuck, it just hit the hospitals. Yeah. Yeah, was he trying to, to kind of back out and say, this is garnering too much attention let me release the kill switch mm-hmm. to try and, yeah. Or it was never intended to go as far as it did and it went too far. So he started the kill switch to kill it. Mm. And now I'm the hero. Right. But Hopefully then he could be exonerated. Funds. Yeah. Then who transferred the funds? Because he was in jail. But if you create a banking Trojan dude and you're on the FBI's radar, like, and you're in the US, you got to imagine you're mm-hmm. going to get picked up. I, I, I think but to sometimes he- criminals think that. U.S. federal agencies are kind of stupid to this, but, yep. but they they don't realize there's a lot of smart people working for the U.S. Yeah, the, government the, the big one, tracking this kind of shit. Like you're going to get picked up, dude. The big like, one he probably didn't realize that he was he was made. Yeah, and because that could, he, be, that could went, be an insider. That could be yep. FBI has surprising. people that are infiltrated. I mean, they picked him up at the end of DefCon when he was leaving. I mean, mm. in yep. theory, they could have picked him up anywhere along the line. Yeah, well, maybe yeah, they, right, I mean, Jeff. Like the the thinking is they probably knew who this person was as soon as they entered mm-hmm. the uh, this person entered the country. Yep. Um, and, and you're right, Jeff. Why did they let him not pick him up to the end? Was, did they hey, take hey, time to put the? Pie- I mean, like a Hollywood movie. Did they take down and put the pieces together and go, "Holy shit, get that person before they leave"? Maybe you don't know. Yeah, well, I think if they had picked him up during and everybody would have been talking about it at the con, right? And this is kind of after everybody's all gone home. Yeah, yeah I, I'm with you, Galen. I think they're decent. They were being decent people to, to, in the respect of of uh, let the guy have his fun, but also not, 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 uh, no, no I don't, I don't think so. Job. No, I think if there's not wanting to cause a scene and not wanting to, yeah, well, if, yeah. if a, a, a federal U S federal government agency is onto someone, they are yeah. not taking into account 
like how much fun you're having at the conference. If the uh, the whole thing hinges on the opportunity to apprehend the suspect safely, mm-hmm. and that was just the time that they felt was yep, that was uh, or believed that was safe to apprehend the suspect safely. Yep. And, and based on whatever evidence they had collected to the point, so if they didn't have enough evidence uh, up until that point, they wouldn't have apprehended that yep. person. Uh, if they had enough evidence to nab that person when they landed, they would have nabbed him when they landed, dude. Yep. So now, I, I think. The, well, so the other, I think the other they one, had they didn't have the evidence until yep. he was leaving, or it was just an opportune time to to apprehend yep. that suspect. Now that said, uh, you know, and again, I'm second guessing everything, and everything I know about mm-hmm. law enforcement is wrong, type of thing. That uh, trying to do an apprehension potentially at DefCon is a rep- recipe for disaster. Because if you send a cu- well, for a couple of reasons, you send a couple of agents in to go apprehend a guy that has twenty five thousand of his closest friends no, nearby. I don't. I know. I don't. I'm, I don't think that's true. I don't think it's you, a possibility. So we're it's all ha- so we're all hackers on this podcast. If we if we had if we were working for the federal government, let's say, knowing having the skills that we have and the. The government FBI has people like us sure. working for them, they have a, uh, which I think is great. Skills. Which I think is great, and I, yep. it's good that we have that right for for all, a whole lot of reasons. Um, we would know where that person was staying. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, come on now. Like I've been at. Come on now. I've been at conferences, and my phone is rung with my friends that like knew where I was staying. I didn't tell them where I was staying. They knew. Because they're hackers, like, like, right. I mean, and they're my friends. Like, so if they were going to apprehend him at, at the conference, they okay. would have done that already in the quietest manner possible. A- a- everything, yep. everything we're saying is speculation, anyway. Sure, no, okay. it is, but that's the part of the fun job. Yep, it's to like, speculate. Yeah. Like you don't go into the biker bar, one cop into the biker bar to arrest the one biker that did that thing. You catch well, him yeah. outside. Well, and the other, the, but the other thing too is, you know, they they could have been in the investigation and been like. I think what everyone is all saying here is like it's easiest to apprehend this person as they're leaving. So let's just wait until that person's leaving yep. as to not cause a scene. Sa- yeah, safe, be, sa- safe. There's no guarantee. There's a guarantee of no weapons. <laughs> TSA. Um, well, it, well, yeah, it, and that, it, right. And that's the thing. Like the safest right. place to apprehend the suspect is at the airport once they've gone through TSA. Yep. That's the safest and most quietest place to apprehend the sub- suspect. Let's just do yep. it. Right yep. And like, let's face fact, if this person, if the federal government has collected enough evidence about this person to convict them of a federal crime that violates the CFAA, they're not getting on a plane and going home. Like their only way to get home conceivably, then there's lots of ways, but let's plane or boat. They know, right. They know that the person is going to leave the country on commercial airline because mm-hmm. they have seen the it's person's ticket. Right. Choke point. They, exactly, yep. it's a choke point, and that's where they apprehend. So I yep. can see that. Yeah, that was fun. So speaking I'm glad of, we, speaking I'm glad of, we talk, uh, not fun for this person, but yeah. obviously you create a banking trojan, tuned, dude. Like dude, you're on, like you're on, like high radar, yep. man. Like yep. the whole thing that um, <clears throat> we as a community have to communicate to the youth that are getting into this field is what we've always said in the show: hacking is great, but. It's only great if you do it with permission. Yep. And as soon yes. as you cross that line, that's the difference between having a very successful, potentially very su- successful career sure. in this yep. field and 
thinking about how you look in an orange jumpsuit. Yep. <laughs> it was just Sam, what we joked Sam, about in the show. Exactly. Right? Sammy Kemkar yep. and Kevin Mitnick are... Kevin Paulson. Outsiders. A, a long, yeah, those are the mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> anomalies, and that stuff happened a long time ago. Today, it's very different. Sammy, like, there's a Sammy very, Kem, Kemkar, not so much long yeah, ago. But, fairly recently. Yeah. But Sammy's been on the show and talked about his yeah. whole experience. Um, the, the difference between having permission... And not having permission is being in the orange jumpsuit in federal prison. Yep. So I want to make that message very clear to everyone listening to this show. Like, there are consequences. Absolutely. And even more so today than yep. there were 15 or 20 years ago. So, yep. uh, yes. So, Paul, I'm going to jump ahead of you because it's a great <laughs> yeah, segue. Speaking, and it's quick, speaking of weapons and TSA, um, talk at DEF CON from Plone. Uh, he found a way to hack a specific brand of a smart gun. The mm. smart gun. Oh, I heard about ha- that. Yeah, the yeah. smart. The there you go. Nice ash. Mm. Uh, the smart gun um, has a watch, a ri- so effectively an RF enabled wristband that you have mm-hmm. to wear uh, when you fire the gun. It has to be within a foot or so of the gun. So if you're wearing it on your wrist, it's within a foot or so of the handgun. Yeah, um, and it transmits a code to the gun to unlock it to allow it to fire. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you pull the trigger and it does nothing. nothing um, he found a way to total total recall. Yes, yes. Mm. He found a way to, one, replay the signal. So you take the watch and you put it several feet away, and you have a little transmit receive, and then you have another little transmit receive you put next to the gun, and it effectively is a proxy. Mm -hmm. Vapor trail repeater. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That communicates to the gun using the exact same chipset and transmit to the gun distance and will fire. With, a, with the gun further away. But now there has to be some proximity of the other things. He also built a transmitter using the same chipset to denial service. So you can't fire the so gun. So you can't fire the gun even though the watch is there. Mm-hmm. The Replaying abs- the signal, though, I'm pretty sure I saw that in War Games. Yes. The absolute <laughs> most brilliant, and the, the vendor argued, well, that requires some sophisticated equipment to discover. Well, yeah, no, it did. But, but, but now that the implementation <laughs> is out there, it costs less than $50 in parts to do either denial of service or extend distance. But even better, for about $5 in magnets from Amazon mm-hmm. and a wooden dowel and a screw, he found the way the gun operates is that when you receive the code that says, yes, you can fire, it fires up an electromagnet that pulls a pin down that allows the firing pin to engage. <laughs> so he takes some high-powered neodymium magnets and holds it to the side of the gun with the watch nowhere to be found. Yeah, it can bypass the... He's effectively using the magnet to replay the electromagnet. Yeah. Well, this sounds very similar to the way that electronic locks were often defeated. Yes. Yep. Yep, and they've done that. <clears throat> yep. Uh, very scary to have... Um, in my, my fear is for uh, law enforcement to have mm-hmm. this technology... Uh, and and have it be defeated. Very scary to to talk about if your weapon, military or federal government, like mm-hmm. to have it not to fire, to have it rely on this type of technology is mm-hmm. very, very scary. Yep. The, and, I, uh, I think it's more like security awareness and training. Yep. To uh, yeah combat this problem rather than technology about who can fire your gun and, and mm-hmm. who can't. And it works well in Hollywood. Uh, right. But not so much in practice. Right. Because in Hollywood they've got a perfect system. Yeah, yeah, and Plone's uh, Plone's thing was, uh, you know, I'd hate to see the industry move forward with a flawed system. Mm. 
No, and it's good. And so the voting machine was also a big thing. Yep, voting machine village, uh, which I didn't even know was a thing at DEF CON until after I heard that almost all the voting machines had been hacked like 90 minutes in. Was there, uh, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, was there some type of legislation that needed to happen to allow or, or be exonerated to allow this to happen at DEF CON? I saw Kitty Mazuris and making some posts about my understand. About that. My understanding was all the voting machines that were used were purchased as surplus on eBay, mm-hmm. and just because they were surplus doesn't mean they weren't in use in another district. Mm-hmm. So the first one that fell was in use in a bunch of places, including the entire state of Nevada. Mm-hmm. but had been used in another district somewhere else and had released their stuff uh, for sale uh, surplus on eBay. One of them, that a different one, if I remember correctly, was purchased um, off of eBay as surplus equipment, and they did forensic analysis, which was stupid simple, and found the results of and voter records of the folks from a previous election even uh, though the device was allegedly wiped. My goodness. Wow. Trash that, that was going to be my question, Larry, by the way. I was like, oh, surely they left, um, you know, artifacts of prior elect. Yeah. Yes. They did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, there, so there were, um, it was actually a Rhode Island yeah. congressman. Yep, Jim Langevin. Jim Langevin, uh, thank w- you. Which was that- interesting because it was funny because they were talking, they had these two little forums. They mm-hmm. did it one night. It was so successful. They did it a second night. And one of the nights that someone, uh, Jim Langevin says, um, I'm surprised no one's hacked my wheelchair. Yes. Because he has one of those uber, like, awesome, self-balancing, like, regular height wheelchair type but, things. So the... the- yeah, so there's a couple of things I would, here. I would love to be on that show. Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. Um, in order to allow the voting machine hacking, they required uh, people like Jim Langevin to lobby to the. There's like an arcane law, the Wassner uh, Wassner agreement. Wassner agreement. Yep. It, it says basically these things can't happen. There were a lot of people. Uh, follow Katie Mazaris on, mm. on on Twitter. She she tweeted about it that allowed this to happen, which I think is very important for the protection of U.S. elections uh, and freedom, basically yep. to prevail. Uh, so very very uh, groundbreaking breaking in that respect. Also, Security Weekly exclusive. Um, our uh, one of our hosts, uh, Doug White, yes. who hosts uh, Security Digital Life. Uh, is very has a very good relationship with uh, Jim Langevin and is interviewing him next week. Next week, I would I would love on, on, I would love on, to on secure secure digital life. Yeah, next Wednesday. So obviously, this topic is going to come up, and we're going to get a lot of information. When Katie was was tweeting and like, posting on Facebook, this was happening. I was like, yeah, this is like right in our backyard, and and yes, we already have interviews uh, scheduled. So nice. it's really cool. Excellent. Um, what else? Uh, I wanted to talk about. Uh, there was another story. Yep. And when you when you have one, I if you don't have one, my story number three because it's very relevant to our T-shirt. Okay, do that while I pee. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so number three was quote billboard hacks, uh, and the story I uh, got uh, linked to from uh, Graham Cooley, uh, and my tagline was "We drink because you don't change your default passwords." 
Um, a for some some folks were able to get hold of the team viewer password uh, for a particular firm that is responsible for supporting digital billboards in the UK. Oh my! And they went Uh-oh. and changed the digital billboards to be all sorts of stuff from like Reddit, like alt left. So there was Nazi stuff, and there was you know Big Brother is watching you, and all this type of stuff. Uh, on these billboards. But to make things even better, not only did they spew all of this stuff on these big digital billboards, they changed the damn passwords so the legitimate owners couldn't get back in and fix it. Ah, uh, that's so awesome. <laughs> and it was multiple hours and multiple phone calls to the police before the billboards were actually, in fact, shut down and turned off. So wow. wow. So again, it's like a theme of the show. We're 25 years ago where we're just hacking for fun and what can we do and what can we do to be disruptive? Is there monetization in it? it you know, is, is there a threat that we should be worried about other than we don't like what we're seeing on the billboard? Other than graffiti, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's like, web, it's like website defacement in the, in the early 90s. Yeah. I mean, we could, like Galen just said, you could have put ads up there you, we didn't pay for. Right, like Ooh. yeah. So the, I'm looking at the screenshot of Big Brother is watching you, uh, the uh, Nazi flag, and warning: this is a Sharia-controlled zone. No alcohol, no gambling, no porn. And this other yeah. one that I don't understand. Well, who the, you know, fu- that, who the fuck are these freaks, well, and why are they such a big deal all of a sudden? That's interesting, Larry, because it could have gotten really ugly. It's not just defacement; it's perhaps defacement with an agenda. Yeah. But still, no direct monetary cost. I mean, there you know there could be okay, some people in there. What are we talking about? Certainly, pol- politics. Uh, we're talking about your poop. Politicking. Yeah. <laughs> Cleaning out of a robotic vacuum. Yes. Yeah, yeah, write a blog, blog post about that. Pole. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. The images of the billboard were posted on the Paul politically incorrect message board of 4chan. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yep, it does. Does so yeah so the Paul was that there's some billboards uh, team viewer password uh, put a bunch of offensive stuff up there potentially and then changed the password so the support folks couldn't get back in and fix it story number three billboard hacks um net neutrality where does Thank everyone God. stand on, so the <clears throat> apparently there was a, a distributed denial of service attack on the FCC that prevented people from commenting on net neutrality. Hmm. There was a, a great video that was very entertaining. Where did it come from? John Oliver. Oh, yeah. All right. What, oh, yeah. What is it? He, he has a, a show. He's very entertaining. He has a show on HBO. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, daily news show on HBO. I guess three years ago, he uh, did a segment on net neutrality. Mm-hmm. And uh, caused like their site to go down. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, anyway, all kinds of drama. Uh, great video that uh, John has posted that really, in a very entertaining way. But don't let that take away from the the message that he provides and kind of the insider crap that's going on for net neutrality. And, and, and basically, what that what it boils down to is that we need to prevent 
that kind of conflict of interest in ISPs. He calls it ISP fuckery. Like, like <laughs> well, flat I mean, out, he calls it, yeah. like, we need to stop ISP fuckery. And what people who are against the regulation of the uh, internet and opposed to net neutrality say is that, well, it hasn't happened up to this point. And I'm like, well, the reason it hasn't happened up to this point is because during the Obama administration, ISPs were classified as Title II, which means they have to treat everyone the same way. Yep. Which basically means if you uh, have Bing and Google and, you, and Microsoft is giving you money, you can't favor Bing and like yep. destroy the bandwidth to Google search. Right. And, and just the way he presents it is really funny yep. uh, and gives lots of examples of that. And largely the argument I've seen from, from people is like, well, it, it hasn't happened in this time. And I'm like, but you don't want it to happen. Like ISPs are not good. And the arguments are not like they are not built on, on facts or reality at all. No. At all. None. And they're like, well, if, if we get a, you know, net neutrality really crippled their ability to make money and they haven't put any money into infrastructure and, very smart on John Oliver's part. Yep. They went back to a Verizon uh, statement uh, that was a communication to their shareholders, which is public. Yep. Uh, because when you're a public company, you're, those you kinds of things are public, right? And they said, well, you know, this, uh, you know, several years ago, they were like, well, this ruling on net neutrality isn't going to impact our commitment to putting money into infrastructure and growing our, our business in Fios, internet, or, or whatever. So, Verizon, for example, has come out and said, basically, this isn't going to impact our business. Right. And we're going to continue putting money. And the, the argument that like the Trump administration regulators and the, uh, the asshat that... Because <laughs> he isn't... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to get political. He's a douche canoe. The FCC commissioner is, 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 is an asshat. Um, and I just formed that uh, Ajat Pai, right? Mm-hmm. That they make fun of him because he has a big Reese's cup. That watch the video. If you read the article in the show notes, it goes to the video and it explains all this. <clears throat> like the argument he gives is, well, you know, they they were limited in their ability to expand because of net neutrality. I'm like, no, do they like they, the they just, share, at least one in the of shareholders the meeting? They said they're going to continue to put money. It, it's just, it's really upsetting to the me. Fuckery. It, the fuckery. The, the be, ISPs, no, be fuckery. The yeah, fuckery. The fuckering. It, it just the whole ISP thing. Just it it rubs uh, I. I want it to have a choice, right? I don't want it to be driven by, um, and the, he it shows clips of interviews that basically like, well, you know, the interview is like interviewing someone from Verizon or uh, actually they're interviewing uh, Ajit Pai and they're like, well, so what if Comcast has a TV network mm-hmm. and that TV network competes with Netflix? And since Comcast owns the bandwidth as an ISP, they <clears throat> make Netflix much slower mm-hmm. than the TV show that's provided by Comcast, and, his, and then he picks apart his answer as like complete bullshit. And like that's that's the heart of net neutrality, right? Like, I, and for us as an independent podcast organization, it hits home because I don't want ISPs to say, "Well, the people that give us lots of money." Mm-hmm. Their content's going to be delivered very quickly, 
and everyone who doesn't give us a whole bucket of money, their content is going to be delivered very slow. I mean, that's because the, the real- somehow we believe the internet should run differently than the way the whole world operates, which is where money talks. Right. True. True. However, that's the way it's worked till now and has completely changed the face of business and let people like us mm-hmm. and lots of other businesses operate because yep. there is a fair and open internet. Yep. And I'm not a huge fan of regulation, um, but this, in my opinion, it, it speaks to like the mafia. Like, oh, I you know, pay, pay the mafia and then I can operate as a business. Yeah. For protection. <laughs> For protection. Yeah. I think what gets me is there's stuff in place that, you know, prevents new ISPs from coming in to compete with existing ISPs in, like, localized areas. So there's no, it's very hard, you know, for a new ISP to come in and say, hey, we don't limit your speeds to Netflix. Buy us instead because they just Mm -hmm. can't provide that service. So I feel like you can't have it both ways. Do you want to be regulated or not regulated? So when you guys are playing around with your, what did you call your tool? Your Vapor radio trail. tool. Uh, figure out a way to monitor it, and then you could figure out a way to monitor the bandwidth usage of all these ISPs. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Uh, on, a, on. On, a, on a side Larry, note. I want yeah. you to be big brother. No. On a side note, <laughs> on a side note we talk about John, uh, late night TV with who? Who was that? John Oliver. John Oliver. Uh, I read a fantastic book on um, a – there was an autobiography – uh, Born a Crime, from the host of The Daily Show, Trevor Noah. Mm-hmm. It's his sort of autobiography about growing up. <clears throat> and very much a, I wouldn't say rags to riches, but rags to someplace awesome. Mm. Unbelievable story about him growing up in South Africa. So During yeah, apartheid. Right, during, during apartheid, which... <clears throat> which is the title of the book because he was the product of a white father and a black mother, which was illegal during apartheid. And he was born during apartheid. Hmm. Yeah. So like legally he didn't exist or something. I've heard him talk about it. It was crazy. Go read the book. It was an amazing story. He's a comedian. So he brought comedy to all of these really tragic situations. And it was, it was an unbelievable read. I've read it twice in the last month. Hmm. Cool. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Wrapping up, perhaps. Yeah. So there, the there hour. is a there is a website. Um, I forget what it, what what was the website called. Hold on. They, you could go to the FCC website and like navigate around, mm-hmm. and they created a a website from John Oliver's show. It was uh, FCC something. Hold on. I don't remember what it was. The link is in the show notes. You can yep. go there and go direct. Basically, you can also go to Comedy Central and download a plugin that's called "Make Trump's Tweets Eight Again," and all his tweets come across written in crayon. <laughs> oh God! That's the other thing you can do is provide commentary to the FCC mm-hmm. to uh, encourage them to classify ISPs as Title II, so that everyone can use the internet in a fair and open manner. Which is what I'm a big proponent. And if you don't agree, that's that's fine. It's fine, absolutely. That's fine. You're allowed to. You know how to engage with us. I'm yep. happy to have the debate. Yep. Uh, we might I want to see. We, we might not see eye to eye by the time the end of the debate is over, and that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly you know fine too. Um, we're human beings, and we can agree to disagree. And and obviously, we're kind of somewhat uh, jaded on the issue, as we're an independent media <laughs> organization. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I am in this case, I am against regulation, mm-hmm. and I, you know, Cory Doctorow certainly opened my eyes as a guest on this show. Yes. That's really, you know, spoken yep. to regulation in yep. the most intelligent manner. Yep, it's not all bad and it's not all good. <clears throat> This is one case where I I, I disagree mm-hmm. wholeheartedly with the uh, well I actually agree with the regulation and there are other times where I wholeheartedly disagree with the the regulation. Yeah. Um, which which by the way, Galen, I don't know if you realize, but when we were doing our demo labs presentation, one of the gentlemen that I spoke with at length while you were mm-hmm. doing demos, I believe, with the gentleman that was asking all the technical questions, was Corey Doctorow. Nice. Oh wow. Yes. I did not realize that. Yes. The gentleman with the very uh, really thick rimmed white and orange glasses. That's Corey. Yep. That's Corey. Nice. Yes. <laughs> so Corey he was sauce. very he was very Corey interested sauce. in Vapor Trail. Yeah, what did Corey think of He thought it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I can I can, I can, I can see, see that. that. Huh? Yeah. yeah. He's so smart. He, he did a book signing at, at DEF CON. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And well, he's I said, you know, Corey, I think we've I think we met last year. He's like, Really? I'm like, yeah, you were at the No Starch book press book. Uh, no starch press book booth that was right next to the security weekly stuff and you were doing a, a book signing we did meet and him we met yes and, yes. and I said I don't blame you if you don't remember you right, met so right. many people but I can tell you when I met you and it's great to, that you have some interest in the project let me tell you about it and he, and he definitely suffers from wherever he goes at a conference like that yeah, like people yeah, recognize yeah, yeah. him yeah, and, absolutely and it was great yeah. to it was great to connect with him on the hey let me tell you about this project that we did it's cool. it's cool. I love Corey. Yeah, it's it's funny that you know, like that whole fanboy thing goes in two directions. It does. It goes, I know because I'm like, you, we're, we're like totally like you know, yeah, Corey Doctor fanboy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's funny that yeah. Jeff is telling us to wrap up and not the production staff. I think they're all sleeping over there. <laughs> so they fell asleep. I just I want to talk about ad blockers. We mentioned this before. Uh, Chrome is building in an ad blocker. Do you guys know about this? I had not heard. I've heard about it. This hits on. A lot of security topics that we've talked about on the show, specifically when I go to a completely legitimate website and their ad services trickle down two or three or four mm-hmm. layers, and yep. in that layers they're serving uh, uh, malware to my browser. Yep. And what I thought was interesting, so a couple of different points, the highlights are, one, Google is introducing something in the next version of Chrome which is not available yet. It's only available in an early adopter program. And they're calling it something weird. Uh, mm-hmm. Funding choices is what they're calling it. Ah. So essentially, they'll block ads. However, if I want to enable that feature, I have to put money in a Google wallet. When I put money in that Google wallet, it's shared between Google and the advertiser. And if Google gets money, and the advertiser gets money. I don't see ads as a consumer. And the advertiser, Forbes, Wired, what have you, and Google mm-hmm. get money. It's really kind of a... Well, it's a mafia play, like Jeff was talking about yeah. before. Really, right? There's a couple of different mafias at play. There's like the Italian and the Irish mafia. Like, yeah, I don't know which is which. Google's might be the uh, Italian mafia, and the advertisers like Forbes and Wired might be the Irish mafia. I got to pay off the mafia. If I don't want to see advertisements. What I found interesting was um, the article, uh, mm-hmm. which was pretty good from Naked Security. Lisa Voss wrote a, a really nice article. And, and Lisa kind of chronicles like 
this has happened where uh, Forbes and Wired are the two kind of biggest uh, proponents. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they have to go, like she's put in the article. They're like, they got to go to the grocery store and, and, and buy food for their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. But um, she's like, you know, once they started requiring that people either pay or view the ads, the people that view the ads got malware. <laughs> I think it was Forbes that had that that had that issue. Um and it's been oh, there's been a huge back and forth. Oh my god. And and she chronicles it in this article. Where is it? And, and she wrote something really, really funny in this article, and I can't find it right now. Um there's like a whole back and forth between ad blocker and ad oh Facebook. It was with Facebook, like the Ad blockers, oh, here we go. So the, the most galling of, of the skimishes is ad blocking, ad blocker, ad, anti-ad blocker blocking, oh, no, you don't, ad blocker blocker, blocking wars in, in January when Forbes offered users who disabled ad blockers an ad light version of the site. So Facebook has gone through this too where uh, ad, uh, uh, whatever the ad blocking plug is for Chrome, basically said, hey, we can block Facebook ads now. <clears throat> right? Great. Facebook ads seems like, oh, no, you don't. Like, now we have ads, and it bypasses your ad blocking. And so there's this whole war going on in the ad blocking world. Space. Yep. Which is just very concerning. And which, which is the scary part is that this reminds me so much of the TiVo 30-second skip thing. Yeah, exactly. You're that, very right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that I don't have 30-second skip on my DVR at home for, from You Verizon. used to have to hack TiVo to get that. Well, no, it used to come by default. And then they removed, they removed it, it, and then, it, and then you had to hack, hack it. Right. And my Verizon DVR doesn't have it, but you know what I have? I have this jump like five or Cody? ten seconds. <laughs> no, I have this jump five or ten seconds, and you go boop, 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 and it's done. Right. Well, it's actually usually more boops than that. But And every time I talk to my mom, she's like, did you see that commercial? And I'm like, nope. Nope. Did you see that commercial? Nope. Did you see that cute commercial? On, nope. Was it on during the Super Bowl? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> because what I have Cody. you're un-American not watching the Super Bowl exactly. so Larry uh, on a closing note Larry and I have had in-depth discussions about home theater yes. hacking home home theater home, home theater home media home media yes when I got back from uh, Black Hat and Def Con I, I took some time off and one of my <clears throat> projects was changing around our home theater I've been working on this project for probably six months now mm-hmm. Uh, Larry and I had an in uh, almost forty-five minute, which is rare that you and I get forty-five minutes, minutes of because I left work early to come. And like have John Strand says, people think that like we talk every night and be like, "Hey, how you doing?" Yeah. Like, no, like we're 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 busy. We have jobs and and, and family. Mm-hmm. And when we get to see each other, we cherish that time. Yep. Larry and I had forty-five minutes of cherished time today. Yes, and because, our, because I left work early specifically to come here to talk to you because I have a solution that isn't fucking working anymore. <laughs> you, and I you know you've done our cherished time was spent on home theater hacking. So I think we're going to do a slightly off topic, like like hacking your home theater yep. kind of segment on the show because at least one listener, and I know like when one listener requests something, there's probably at least a dozen or so more, or maybe more that that want that content about how we've hacked our home theater uh, systems to be able to watch what we want to watch. What we want to watch. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. We had a, g- a great discussion today. We did kind of interesting. 
I spent, we both spent money too. Cause we were talking with each other. We're like, all right, I, I totally need to buy that. Like, yeah, we went, well, I haven't spent the money. It's in my cart. It's in your cart. Yeah. I spent money. It was only $35, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we, when we do yep. that segment. That's going to be a fun segment. So, yep, absolutely. And I think I would hate to say it, but I think it should maybe be a bonus show in addition to something. Yeah. Like, Oh, let's just do it in a segment on Paul Security Weekly. Yeah. That's what the people want. Damn it. We're going to give you what you want. All right? So we're going to do a segment on home theater hacking. Sounds good. I want the episode to end. Give me what I want. Okay. Larry, take us out. Over. And. Out? No, not this one. (laughs) (laughs) Over and out. 